Welcome to the Feels Like 45 podcast. I'm Cade Webb, and as always, I am joined by Dustin Ragusa. Dustin, how are you doing this week? Hey, I'm doing well. Any, I know I say this every week after a win, but any podcast after an Oklahoma State victory is going to make me in a good mood. How are you? Yeah, no question. It is absolutely uh, wind in my sails as the entire Webb household is dealing with a bout of covid I've had code in a long time. I don't remember it being like this, but it's been pretty brutal. So to your point, Dustin, I am in a good mood. All of that notwithstanding, I will in advance apologize to our listeners, though. I will be judicious with the mute button uh, this week. So anyway, Dustin, I totally agree. Huge win in Morgantown. I mean, hard to overstate that one. That's a game Oklahoma State not favored in the, you know, advanced analytics don't favor Oklahoma State in that game. It's a game that you likely you know, looking at the season beforehand could have seen Oklahoma State slipping up and instead they win it. And now, you know, all the all the attention points to the back half of the schedule because everything's still right in front of them. Yeah, it's it's really weird to kind of look back at our preseason predictions now because I think you and I both had us losing to K-State and winning every other game up yep. until this point when you're talking about Big 12 play. And we're, we're there, you know, but it feels, it feels different than how we predicted it, obviously, especially when you throw the South Alabama game in there as well. But in this West Virginia game, four lead changes, six fourth quarter scores, and Ollie Gordon goes absolutely nuts. And Oklahoma State wins the game 48 to 34. They're now five and two overall, three and one in conference play. And with consecutive victories over K-State, Kansas, and West Virginia, Oklahoma State has won three straight games over teams it lost to last season. Kate, I wanted to get your take on this. I thought about texting you during the game about this. It's 27-24 in the fourth quarter with like 10 minutes to go. And it had been what you and I talked about, a sloppy game. There was started, It was starting to rain. We thought it was maybe going to rain the whole time. And I was like, man, this is the first time I think Cade and I have kind of hit it right on that yeah. season. And then Oklahoma State goes on to score like four more touchdowns in that yeah. quarter and completely changes the outlook and the perspective when looking back on that game. The game was a, almost a tale of two halves for me. I mean, 35 second half points compared to 13 first half points. I think Oklahoma State's defense additionally like did some things in the second half that were better than what they did in the first. However, the the contrast was drastic on the offensive side of the ball. And I would agree with you. I thought we were really uh, gearing up towards a low-scoring affair. There were several stops in the red zone, a missed field goal. I thought, yep, this is what I was expecting. And then Ollie Gordon goes for 282 on the ground and four touchdowns, most of which – came in the fourth quarter, so it was definitely a slamming of the door for Oklahoma State, but man, that's what you want to see in, in the Big 12. These road games, none of them are easy, but for Oklahoma State to lean on their you know workhorse running back and slam the door, 
What, uh, Dustin, it's been a while since I've seen Oklahoma State win a game, a tough game like that, going away in the fourth quarter. It was just a really good feeling. Yeah, through three quarters, Oklahoma State had 136 rushing yards, and then Ollie rushed for 145 in the fourth. So, to your point, yeah. it, it was absolutely wild. After that Iowa State and South Alabama lost, how crazy is it now to see Oklahoma State with votes in the AP poll? And if you calculated the votes out and extended the poll past 25, they would be 31st in the nation. It just, you and I said, after that Iowa State game, this feels like a team that could still win some games. After we got to see Ollie Gordon get a bulk of the snaps, after we got to see Alan Bowman, but I don't think, Either of us thought we were, they were going to rattle off this many wins in a row, especially against some quality opponents, including a game at West Virginia. No, I, I think when I said that, I was thinking the bowl streak was in serious jeopardy. I mean, I after those games, I felt like that was an Oklahoma State team that I have not seen since you know 2005. So, yeah, when we said some games they could win, I literally meant like a couple. Like that was the way I was feeling. Now, Dustin... I think Oklahoma State's likely going to be either favored in every game or the rest of the way. They won't be favored against Oklahoma. That'll be the only game they're not favored in. But every other one of them, they'll be no less than a a three-point dog, I wouldn't think. And this is the point of the schedule where you and I were talking about in the preseason. Now everything hasn't gone how we expected, but that gets a little bit lighter outside of the Bedlam yeah. game. You've got Cincinnati coming in at two and five, haven't won a big 12 game yet. You've got UCF who's had a bunch of injury issues. They've been up and down BYU. Who's looked good at times, bad at times. So to your point, I think Oklahoma state will probably be favored in every game except Bedlam, depending on how this weekend goes. But I say, let's get right into it. Cade. If we could do yeah. the quick ad break and then I say, let's start with the offense. Yeah. Good with that. Thanks, Dustin. As a reminder, this podcast is brought to you by our friends at Charlie Hustle Clothing Company. Charlie Hustle is a vintage-inspired clothing company based out of Kansas City that specializes in collegiate and hometown apparel. Charlie Hustle wants you to be the best-dressed fan this season, so be sure to check out their wide selection of officially licensed collegiate apparel and show off your school spirit all season long. With over 30 schools to choose from, they've got you covered with all of your favorite collegiate apparel needs. So shop today at www.charliehustle.com. And when you do use our promo code 101215 for 15% off all non-sale items. Charlie Hustle, vintage made fresh. Dustin, let's get right into it. Yeah, so the Oklahoma State offense totaled 491 yards of offense, 48 points after you know a stretch of not scoring 30. They've started to score a little bit these past few games. 281 yards on the ground, 290 through the air. All three marks, 48 points, 491 yards of offense, and 281 on the ground were the most allowed by West Virginia this season who entered the game allowing just 22.7 points and 119 rushing yards per game. That 48 points that Oklahoma State's offense produced is the highest mark of the season and most in a road game since the Oregon State game where they scored 52 on August 30th. 2019 Kate it was an amazing amazing performance as we get into kind of you know we like to kind of talk about the scheme first something on the snap counts just a few notes that I had Taylor Materko we found out right after the podcast from Robert Allen on the radio that Materko had been working at tackle 
because they were going to no, no longer play Birmingham there. He's only going to play guard and Cooper's dealing with some injuries. So he only had to go out there for one snap. Jake Springfield went down, but he came right back out the next series. But that was the first snap at right tackle for Taylor Materko since 2020. Yeah, a little bit jarring in the moment. It's like, oh boy, we're really we're actually doing this. Okay, let's uh, let's buckle up. <laughs> we've we've also heard Noah McKinney has been running a lot. We mentioned several weeks ago that some of the younger guys were running with the ones and the twos now for the offensive line. Noah McKinney, we found out, is one of the main guys that's doing that. So if there were some injuries, I think it's Materko and McKinney that would kind of step up there next. After two straight games of 30-plus snaps for the fullback position, so think Cassidy and Schultz, they only combined for 20 snaps in this game. And Josiah Johnson played every single tight end snap, and I believe it was his second most snaps in the game this year. And then obviously the highest percentage of running back snaps for Ali Gordon as he pretty much played every single snap, 96%, 67 snaps. So it, it's just it's just absolutely wild. I wanted to stop on the snap counts for a second and get your thoughts too, Cade, because going back to the non-con, and I know I know this people are probably getting annoyed with this, which we'll try not to talk about the three QB rotation part of it, but just in general, the changes not only in some of the things we've seen scheme-wise, but in personnel at this point in the season. I mean, you've got Josiah Johnson kind of solidifying himself as the non-running back receiver skill guy that's on the field so much now. At the beginning of the season, you know, we were worried if he could even block, and now he looks awesome out there. The offensive line, we've heard them talk about it in their media sessions. You've got Cooper and Brooks, Cooper and Birmingham, who've had a ton of reps now together on the left side, Springfield and Wilson, who've now had a ton of reps together on the right side. And you can just kind of see this continuity working together with Ollie, working together with Bowman, how it's led to this offense being able to put up 48 points on the road against a decent West Virginia defense. Yeah, it's it seems like to me, like there's a there's a number of ways you could look at that. One, it's putting your best players on the field. Ollie Gordon, Oklahoma State probably doesn't win that game without Ollie Gordon. I mean, is that a fair thing? It's at least much yeah. closer uh, without his effort. So you could look at it from putting your best players on the field, making a concerted effort to do that. You could additionally look at it as the way these kind of snap counts vary from game to game. You could look at this as a game plan. Like there's a there's a chance Oklahoma State literally went into this game and said, Ollie Gordon is getting the rock 30 times. That's the story. We're going to win this game on the back of Ollie Gordon. Whether they did that or not, that's what happened. And for me, Dustin, to hear that, I mean, what is is – uh, 96% of 67 is 68. <laughs> so is there one <laughs> other running back snap out there? I think, I think Nixon had four. Okay. So there yeah. you go. No, enough, three, three. You're right. So you're, you're just two off. Yeah. Enough three to get snaps a, for Nixon. a blow at some point. I don't even know when those came. So it, it's when Ollie like went down for a second. Right. It looked and like he, he looked like he might've been yeah. injured. Yeah. 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 So to me, Dustin, I think you could look at it a number of ways, but as you as you think about like Kansas, that wasn't necessarily the way they used Josiah Johnson, for example. Next week against Cincinnati, are they going to lean on Ollie Gordon the way they have? I think you have to because I think he's he's literally going to command the offense at this point. But it's just interesting to look at this game to game because it has changed. Yeah, it really has. And something else, Kate, I wanted to note it. I guess it's not really scheme, but. 
Oklahoma State's trailed at halftime in multiple games this year. They've pulled away late now in a game in this West Virginia game. They've won a cl- they've won several close games, either being up or coming from behind. I know it's not fun as a fan. I know you and I are on the edge of our edge of our seats when they're playing these games this close or when they're down. But for the team, I think it is comforting for the team and the coaching staff to know that they don't get discouraged when they're down. They can come back and win these games. They can win close games. I think that's just going to continue to help them as they move through the season. If they do get down big early, we haven't really seen them get down big time early recently, but if they do get down big early, I think they know that they could fight back because they've done it before. Yeah. And Dustin, I, I think a lot of credit needs to be given to Rob Glass in this case, because this is two straight games where the fourth quarter was completely dominated by Oklahoma State on both sides of the football. And I I think you can chalk that up to a lot, but I think the other thing is conditioning. I mean, Ollie Gordon, after 282 yards, looked like he could go for 200 more. And and I think West Virginia, by that point, had had enough. They They were not getting a hand on him. So I think you have to chalk a lot of that up to Rob Glass, and it bodes well for the rest of the season is we don't know what Cincinnati looks like, but they, they have not played a big 12 schedule and they are struggling central Florida. The same thing. They're banged up Houston, very similar. We're competitive this week, but we'll see what that looks like long-term. So Dustin, I'm, I'm just saying the way Oklahoma state's conditioned, it, it stands out in games like this, especially when they continuously win them late. It really does. Hey, before we get any more into scheme, I did want to bring something up to you. I kind of trashed Lance Leipold last week. I went back and listened to that presser again. He did get asked about penalties before he kind of went on his rant. I missed that the first time I listened to it. So I apologize to Lance Leipold, who I know isn't listening. But I now want to bash Neil Brown because Neil Brown started his rant in his presser talking about the Presley touchdown that Josiah Johnson held Marcus Floyd. And then he complained about a pass interference late when they were down by 14 points. Yeah. And and he's complained about a pass interference. That's how he started his, he's, if you've ever listened to a Neil Brown presser, it's actually really interesting. He'll do kind of Gundy kind of used to do it. He doesn't do it as much anymore. He kind of just lets the media start asking questions on Mondays or post game. But Neil Brown will go through the entire game and then he will also preview the next team in his Monday pressers before a question even comes out. So post game, he literally brought up both of those penalties before talking about Ollie Gordon, before talking about any of that. Dude, you gave up 150 rushing yards in the fourth quarter. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. And do we want to talk about the field goal that was missed or not missed or the pass interference in the end zone that would have been ball in the two yard? Like we could do that again if we need to, but it doesn't even like the logic doesn't check out. Even if those happen, doesn't change the outcome of the game. So that's very, that's very weak. Basically. I think I'm just kind of trying to boost up Mike Gundy here because I talked about it last week. It's not something he normally does. He normally blames his team and his coaches first. So you could have I, I a coach. Do, I do appreciate that. Yeah, you could have a coach that loses games and loses in the press conference too. You could have that instead of what you have in Mike Gundy. So it could it could always be worse. He's also like mumbling the entire time and like, dude, I'm trying to take notes, talk up a little bit. But well, yeah, we'll see what happens. With Neil Brown as the as the season winds down. West Virginia, I'll keep an eye on them because that's that's a <laughs> fragile ship. I would think we'll see. Well, 
Kate, that's what I was talking to you about. You know, they've won almost every game they've played sloppy. They've also lost sloppy with the Hail Mary. And for three quarters and a couple minutes, they had Oklahoma State in their slop fest, but Oklahoma State ended up pulling out. Yeah, a hundred percent. And it was it was fairly ugly at times, no question. Yeah. Okay, back to some scheme stuff. So something that Coach Gundy has talked about is changing or going to some certain things that Ollie that fit Ollie Gordon. And I think when people hear that, they kind of want to go to gapper zone, gapper zone, you know, like th- those type of things. There's other things that come to that. I've noticed a lot more pistol formation, which gives Ollie a little bit of a kind of better idea of getting started running downhill because he can run kind of directly behind the quarterback, get a little bit of a running start. Gundy has talked about getting this guy running downhill. So it's not so much gap or zone because as we saw last game against KU, not lowest zone percentage of the season, 41%. There was a lot of gap. They mixed in some ISO, some sweeps. But then in this game, they get back up to 53% zone. So he's not just talking about the gap or zone and man blocking split, but he's also talking about things like that, like lining up in the pistol. You can't do it every time or teams will start to catch on, but that gets Ollie Gordon running downhill. And I really like how they've decided to work to his strengths and make the rest of the offense kind of work around that. When he's at full speed, when he's at the line of scrimmage, he's almost impossible to stop. I mean, we have now seen time and time again, his ability to get to the second level and beyond out of that formation. So I I agree. You can't lean on it every time. You're also going to have to disguise some stuff. You have to show other things out of that as the season progresses or else other teams, better defenses like Oklahoma will will key on that. But we'll see as time goes on. I think Oklahoma State against some of the uh, lower level teams that are coming up could probably do whatever they choose and and they'll still do okay. Yeah, that's a great point. 68% 11 personnel. So that's one running back, one tight end on the field. So that'd be Josiah Johnson. So I'm counting the fullbacks as backs. That's the highest all season, I think by quite a bit. I think the next closest was like 53 or something. Cade, something interesting. They ran a lot of screens, a lot of early down RPOs in this game. Oklahoma State was 13 of 16 for 100 yards through the air on first down, 6.3 yards per play. And you see them have a lot of success, especially in the first half on first down. I think their yardage gained on first down, their average yards gained on first down was 7.2 yards gained. And I think a lot of this was due to the fact that, well, Ollie's big runs late. Several of those were on first down, I believe. But getting the ball out of Bowman's hands quickly, especially when you're able to establish the run game early, maybe on first, second down, then you start passing on first down and then West Virginia has no idea and their defensive coordinator has no idea what to do when attacking this offense. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to look back to because there's so much of what looks familiar for Oklahoma State, but the adoption of some of these motion concepts, flipping it out to Presley in the flat, like that stuff doesn't feel like something they were doing a whole lot of and now it's become a staple of the offense. So for me, it's it's adapting to Bowman's strengths, but additionally, it makes me wonder what else is still left in the bag because I have to believe that as he's becoming more and more comfortable in this offense, which he he appears to be weekly. I know he had the interception, but I like that he's taken a shot down the field. That was just a poor read, poor decision, but it was one. And it's like through three games, he's he's been sharp 
And I would think that Oklahoma State has a little bit left in there, knowing that he's he's still adapting. But I I, I would think that this is uh you know it's a good sign moving forward. Yeah, and good call up by you on the motion. They did increase that from the KU game. We saw a little bit more there. Only one three and out from the offense. I thought that was pretty awesome. West Virginia had three. So and when you're talking about the creativity and things like that it's a good point because we still haven't seen a ton of interesting stuff in the true drop back passing game. It's been a lot of snag, yep. a lot of mesh, a lot of shallow concept, Y cross things we've seen since Mason Rudolph was here. So it's a good point by you because that is something they can still break out. And okay, that's kind of all I had on just basic scheme. We'll talk a little bit more run pass game, but I think if you're ready, we can get into the offensive line. Yeah, let me just say one quick thing. I think what's been interesting is, you know, college football's changed. Like, teams aren't lighting up the scoreboard. They're not putting video game numbers in the stat sheet. Like, Oklahoma State totals 491 yards in this game. And I think it felt like in the moment that, at least to me, and I, I don't know how you feel about something like this, but it felt like, especially as the fourth quarter went the way it did, like they're just lighting West Virginia up. But you look, and they didn't break 500. They've only done it once i believe check me on that this season Yeah, i think it was last week but you put up 48 points you win by 14 you're a little more effective in the red zone you're scoring touchdowns a little bit off schedule as you had uh you know several well outside the scoring zone so dustin i think for me it's like finding more ways to put the ball in the end zone because they've struggled in the red zone to to get six like they're getting three but they've struggled to get six. And so that's one of the things I'm looking at going forward. I think this week was a really good sign for me that they can score off schedule and they don't have to run eight plays before they get into a position that they can score. I think Oklahoma State's best offenses have been when they've been able to score from anywhere on the field. Yeah, no, it's it's a perfect call out there. It's probably pretty obvious, but we'll see what happens as it, as the season wears on. Yeah, and something, one note I did miss, and it it'll kind of lead us into the offensive line as well, but the past two games, I think they've done a really good job of tempo, turbo when they need to, going fast, stop, do the fake clap, which has gotten multiple people to jump off sides from their opponent's defenses. Fake clap, check with me to kind of see what the defense is doing. And in this West Virginia game, I don't know if you noticed, but they even huddled up a couple of times. So it was... Very interesting kind of how they're moving with the tempo. Again, you know, you don't hear a lot of complaints about Casey Dunn whenever the offensive line is clicking like this. It It's execution and play calling. We talked about it last week. It's something we talked about with our guy, Adam Lund. He makes a great point. Execution and play calling are one and the same. And when the team is executing the plays, even though they're not running too much crazy stuff in the passing game, they are doing some cool stuff in the run game. It's going to make the play caller get into a rhythm. He can kind of call whatever he wants and know it's probably going to get yards. And then at the end of the game, he looks like a good play caller. Is he, or was the execution that good? I don't know, but it kind of goes the opposite way as well. You can't just bash Casey Dunn when the offensive line is playing bad. So I'm going to keep calling it out because he's been such a polarizing figure, and now you really don't hear that much about him. Well, I think we we were really vocal about that last week, and I think it's it's really important to talk about. I mean, as we go forward, 
and Oklahoma State's offense likely continues to improve. I would think that they're able to do more through the air as the season wears on. So, yeah, Dustin, I think it's great. I think, you know, I don't think Oklahoma State's immune in this regard as a fan base. But as quick as you're, you are to dish out criticism, you need to be equally quick to dish out credit where credit is due. And Casey Dunn is one of those prime examples of he needs a little bit more credit than I think he's gotten. And additionally, I think some of the flack in the past has been deserved. But I do think as the offensive line has figured it out, you've seen some of the things Mike Gundy spoke about, about the offense come to fruition. When he was saying after week one, yeah, I think we truly are better at running the football. And it was like, really? Like, are are we? And then it was week two. Yeah, I think we're better. So Okay, yeah, no, they, they absolutely are better running the football. There's no question. So it's interesting how that works. And again, we just sound like broken records, but it also plays into the fact that Gundy blaming the offensive line injuries for a lot of the offensive yep. struggles late in the season. I mean, you see, you hear Jake Springfield when he's talking after practice this week, talk about how him and Preston have been working together on that right side all season now, or since he came back from that injury or, or very early. And they're starting to just really click. They're able to yep. pick up stunts. They know what each other is going to do when the defense attacks them a certain way in the run and the pass game. So it's it's just really interesting to kind of go back to some of that stuff. Speaking of the offensive line, though, since we're there now, they've allowed just two sacks in the last four games, the fewest in a four-game span since the final four games of the 2021 regular season. It's a team that went to the Big 12 championship game. No sacks in this game against, you know, not the best defense of all time, but a West Virginia defense that's been pretty good. They were, Oklahoma State was four of six on power rushes, which is rushes of two yards or less that converted in a first down or a TD. There was a game, Kate, earlier this season. I can't remember which one off the top of my head, where they were 0 of 5 in that category. They were four of six in this game. I... The first, I want to start with a guy that we've been really critical of, and I feel like rightfully so. And we've also blamed it on his injury, which I also feel like is still accurate. Cole Birmingham at left guard. He's switching in with Brooks early. Brooks goes down with the injury. And I think this was Cole's best game all season. He wasn't flawless. He probably was still one of the worst, I guess, linemen out of the five that played in the game but he was so much better in the run game. He's much better in press pro at guard. He still has struck. He still struggles trying to reach block. Those are hard for a lot of linemen, but especially for one who's gone through so many injuries, speaking specifically for an example, the truck sweep that they ran where the play side tackle pulls, he completely whiffed. He had a whiff on a late third quarter run, but I thought all around, this was his best game of the season. And I am I really want Brooks back. He left with the injury. It sounds like it might be more than a one game thing, but that they think he's going to be back at some point this season. Robert Allen and Gundy have both said similar things this week, but even if he's out for an extended period of time, I think I feel fine with Cole Birmingham at left guard. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to, in some cases, the stat sheet does speak for itself. The tape speaks for itself. Cole Birmingham was not just a stopgap. I thought he was very, very good in, in his duty uh, to come in and fill in for Queso Brooks. So, Dustin, I think you laid it out perfectly. He's a guy that is is not like Casey Dunn and that he needs more credit because I think we've given him a lot of credit considering his injury. But you do have to recognize that he 
that injury put him out of position at tackle. So bringing him in at guard doesn't have to move as, as much laterally. It's a great coaching move and it's a great thing for Cole Birmingham. So look forward to seeing how it works out, especially if he does get some extended playing time. I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful for him that this works out. Yeah. As long as you're on an inside zone or some gap scheme stuff where he's not the puller, he can, he can probably operate pretty efficiently. Jason Brooks, not a ton there, Cade, because when you go back and rewatch, because Birmingham was rotating with him like they have been, he only got 22 snaps. But I thought he looked pretty good. He had one pass pro issue early in the first quarter. He had the false start on the field goal, which wasn't great. He got pushed back in the red zone. But then I thought he looked on the other 18, 19 snaps. I thought he looked really good. He jumped off his double team, got to the second level and sprung Ollie early in the first quarter on one of his first kind of runs over five yards. That looked really good, but I didn't have a lot of notes on Brooks because 22 snaps was only like, yeah. I think 30 or 40% of the total snaps. So yeah, I would agree with that kind of run of the mill game for him. I, we've seen that a lot from him. So Maholski in the middle, he's been solid all season. I thought he was solid again in this game. I didn't think this was his best game, but he also has had some really good games this year. I love that he was wearing the coonskin hat after the game when he got interviewed. I think that was Cassidy's hat. Gundy was wearing it at one point, but he wore it for part of his interview. And then he was like, man, this thing's way too hot. Took it yeah. off his head, just like dripping in sweat. It was really funny, but I thought he was solid in the run game. Hate a few misses. There was a GH counter for example. I like to give examples, Cade, when I just say they had a few misses. So GH counter run early. He completely whiffed on. He got a little bit pushed back in the red zone, which we've we've seen that issue at times. But one thing I wanted to commend him on is West Virginia played quite a bit of odd front in this game with the true nose. And I thought he handled his own in in that sense. It was, you know, a little bit of Mike Lockhart, I believe. And, you know, he's uh, Fatuma Malba. Him and Russell, he kind of handled all, anybody they threw at him pretty well at that nose spot and even got a little bit of push, yeah. which we've seen him kind of struggle with. Yeah, I just as that center anchors the offensive line and you see the success they had running, not really side to side, but just pushing guys out of the way, just you have to give Mahalski credit. It seems like the snaps have gotten better as the season has worn on. Um you know, he's a guy that when we were talking about, I think I mentioned this last week, but I continue to think about this when I think about him. I was concerned about keeping him at center because of what we had seen last year with the snaps, some of the misassignments. By and large, outside of Dalton Cooper, I think he's been your most guaranteed product on the offensive line, which just does he deserves a lot of credit for that. Yeah, I think you're 100% on that. He's He's been, I think, like you said, along with Cooper, very, very consistent. Preston Wilson, another good game from him. He, We mentioned this last week. He doesn't do a lot wrong, but he's not always the guy kind of springing the run. So there's, I think I have the least amount of notes on him, but he was really good in the run game. I thought he was good in pass pro. He did let that pressure happen, which led to Bowman scrambling, and then he held the guy and got the holding penalty. That was kind of a weak holding penalty there, but there was I, I, the really only miss I had was that there was a second quarter truck sweep where he kind of let the guy through. It was the same one Birmingham. That one got completely blown up. Other than that, I thought he was good. And I think him and Jake Springfield as a tandem on the right side have turned into quite the force. You, you'd 
earlier in the season when Cooper moved over there or a few games ago, we were saying, man, Ollie's just going to be running. I, I think you and I talked about this off the podcast, so maybe not on here, but Ollie's going to be running behind the left side the entire time because you got Brooks and Cooper over there. I don't think that's the case anymore. And when you go look at PFF about where the runs happened on the field, it's pretty evenly spread out now. Right. And that's because Springfield and Wilson have been really good on the right side. That's a great point. One thing on the Chuck Sweet before I come back to what you just said about being able to run kind of balanced on both sides. I don't think I want to run the truck sweep anymore until Bedlam when it's a throwback pass. I, I think that they're setting something up because they continue to show it and it has not been that effective. But I, I think they're setting something up. It's also a Jade up. Nixon run. It is, like, right? Like Ollie looked good on. Yeah. Right. Like I, I just wouldn't have thought that Ollie would be the guy running that. It has not been by and large as successful. They haven't ran it a ton, so the sample size isn't great. But I'm going to just say it right now. I think that there's something in the bag with that play design. The second thing, Dustin, is what you said at the tail end. I completely agree. The ability to not just run off the left side and key on that is a huge development for the way that this season could ultimately go. Because now as a defense, obviously, this 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 may seem obvious, but you can't just key on one side defensively. And teams like... Cincinnati, Houston, Central Florida, BYU would benefit from being able to do that. But now that they cannot, I think Oklahoma State has a distinct advantage against each of those defensive fronts. And again, I I, I think that that part is obvious, being able to ba run balanced out of formations to the left or right side, but it hadn't always been that way. Iowa State, for example, they couldn't run right. Now they are able to, and I think it – speaks back to the point you made about there's continuity. They're, they're healthy guys are working together. Yeah. I love Kate that you called that out about the truck sweep. Lunt and I were talking about with that GT counter bash, which I'm sure we'll talk about where the backside guard and tackle pull, but they pitch it to Ollie away yeah. from them in the KU game. They ran Josiah out to the other side I, I could see, you know, maybe a receiver coming in orbit motion the other way, Bowman and that receiver running the option. They're setting something up there, too. So That's what I we're think. Either, we're, we're either wrong or we're going to see some cool plays later in the season off of both of those. But I, I do love that call out. On to the tackles, since we're talking about them, I say let's start with Jake first and we'll go to Dalton. If I, when we do the preview for the other team, and, you know, we kind of give like one or two notes on every player that plays. If I was previewing an Oklahoma State as somebody else, I guarantee you my note for Jake Springfield would be like, does his job. I mean, doesn't do anything wrong. He loves his mom. Just yep. does his job. And that's, but when, when he's on our team, does his job is awesome. He always is just, he's just a technically sound offensive lineman. He's not the strongest. He's not the quickest. He's not the best kick step off the line to be a rusher. But he just does his job. And he talked about he talked about after practice how Coach Dickey tells them to play like a fist, no weak links. Jake Springfield embodies that phrase and that statement because he he just does his job on every play. And th there are times when maybe he messes up, but I, I don't normally note him as man, Springfield messed up. That's why the play got stopped. I think additionally, Dustin, to your point there you would have taken that for the last three years as just guys that do their job, right? That's not what they've had on the offensive line. They've had injuries, and therefore you have guys who are 
inexperienced not doing their job because their job is really hard. So, you know, I think it's a great point. Jake Springfield deserves a ton of credit. And I think as a unit, like this offensive line is good enough to take them to where they want to go ultimately. It's like it's good enough to take them to a a running the table situation. Yeah. He uh Springfield also Gundy said he's kind of a quiet guy. You could tell in the media interview he's probably kind of a quiet guy, but when they asked him about the offensive line's relationship with Ollie, he just got this huge smile on his face. It was awesome. He was just talking about how they'll go into the film room and try to watch film with Ollie, watch film with Bowman during the game. They're talking to him. We talked about how Preston Wilson was talking about that as well. So I, I love that he was really kind of straight faced monotone until they started talking about Ollie. But like I said, that quote I mentioned about him and Preston having a great relationship together. I thought he, I thought he overall was solid in the run, not like great, but I thought he was really good in pass pro. And that's just, as long as Cooper's on the left side, on Bowman's blind side, if Jake can just hold his own on the right side, give him time, I think it's passing game can continue to improve as well. He got up to the second level on that big split zone run in the first quarter that Ollie broke. That was awesome. He also had a great block on one near the end of the game. He did, because he's not the strongest, he does have a tendency sometimes to get pushed back. And when the H-back pulls from his side on that GH counter... He got in the way a couple of times because he got moved backwards and it sent Cassidy or Josiah off their line. That's a little tough, but I, if that's all I'm going to complain about him, I think that's kind of nitpicky. Yeah, I I, I would agree. I would also say that, I mean, there's always going to be things that stand out if you're, if you're not the Alabamas of the world or the Ohio States of the world. That for this Oklahoma State team, this offensive line is developing into something that can sustain them and propel them. I mean, I was talking to uh, I, my father-in-law actually about this. Like at this level, if you have an elite offensive line, you don't have to have world beaters at position like quarterback. I mean, that, look around the landscape of college football. There's a lot of good teams that don't have a Heisman candidate at quarterback like Utah is a great example of this. They're just plugging guys in, and the system works because their offensive line is great. Oklahoma you State... You need the quarterback to be smart. You need your quarterback to be smart, and Oklahoma State has that. Like They have the ingredients this year, which is extremely exciting. And then Cooper, Cade, I, I don't have that many notes because I just... I wrote, fantastic. He's really good. He's really good against the run. He's able to seal the, the edge anytime he's asked. And he's quick enough to get in front of guys on wide outside zone that are away from him when he reached blocks. He was really good in pass pro. There was one run at the beginning of the second half where I wrote, not great. But other than that, I thought he was awesome. He's probably been the best lineman since he's moved to left tackle. He's very athletic. He's not the biggest guy either, I don't think, strength-wise. But he's very athletic and he's quick enough to stay in front of some of these edge guys. He's, I mean, he's one of the better tackles Oklahoma State's had, I think, in in the past couple of years. Yeah, I was trying to think. I mean, uh, golly, it would be hard for me to bring up another name within the last three years that is better than Dalton Cooper. I would agree with that. And that left tackle, that's his spot. Like, he's your starting left tackle for the next two years, unless he goes pro. <laughs> <laughs> Moving on to running backs, it's just Ollie because, like we said, Nixon only played four snaps. I only have one Nixon note, but we can get, or two Nixon notes, but we can get to them at special teams. 
So with the run game, we saw Oklahoma State go back. I put this out on Twitter, Cade, just to talk a little scheme before we get into Ollie. They went back to that escort motion That's that they ran in that uh, Arizona State game. So the tight end will be split out wide, normally in that diamond trips that they do with three receivers to one side. Split him across, and at the snap, he's blocking away from the flow of the offensive line. In a typical split zone, he just gets a running start. Sorry about that. Clear my throat. So I, I love that. Josiah's been giving a lot of pop on those blocks. Like I said, it was 41% zone against KU. That increased to 53% here. We saw the split zone, both wide and inside. They also hit some big counter runs, primarily GH counter. They had the GT counter bash. We saw some ISO out of the diamond formation. But honestly, not a ton of new things besides some formation and some motion shifts here. But man, Cade, Ollie Gordon, first... Cowboy with four rushing touchdowns in a game since Rennie Childs did so on September 7th, 2016 against Pittsburgh. Most rushing yards by a Cowboy since Chuba, Chuba Hubbard ran for 296 against K-State in 2019. First Cowboy with four straight 100-yard rushing games since Jalen Warren in 2021. He ran for 97 yards per carry on 29 carries to get him to 282 yards, four touchdowns. He also had a target in the receiving game. Again, I I feel like we may stay on him for a little bit, but my notes are just, he's so patient. He looks so good moving in the open field. We now know he's got the stiff arm, the spin move and the jump cut, but it's more like a, kind of more like a slow methodical jump cut than like a justice hill jump cut but his patience on the gap runs which you have to have and then his vision on the zone runs i i mean it might even be up there with jalen warren's man i I mean jalen warren was awesome but he didn't have games like this like to where he just exploded and was the best player on the field both sides of the field for multiple games in a row. I mean, he was even great against Kansas state. So, you know, Dustin, I, I, number one, the escort motion is my new favorite play. I, every time Josiah comes across in motion, I think he's just going to blow somebody up. And a lot of times he does, but it's, it is my new favorite play in this playbook. Did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah. Just before I throw it back to you, I just wanted to say, it seems like coach Gundy and Dunn were just watching Kyle Shanahan all off season because Every time like I type something in on Twitter to see who's running, I like to, once I find the play that I want to talk about, I like to kind of search and see who's running that in college or in the NFL, like that screen pass option. That's a Lincoln Riley play that we've seen him run at USC with Caleb Williams. The f- When I typed in that double, guard, or the double tight end counter and then the escort motion, it's all San Francisco 49ers. Yeah, which there are... Uh good offenses to copy off of and then there's Kyle Shanahan so i <laughs> you got to give Mike Gundy some credit on that because i think that's about as good as you could do but it's i feel like it works every time i also think that there's probably something that you know could develop out of that in the future but back to Ollie there are good running backs and then there's like this crop of you know generational running backs and Ollie Gordon, I think, I think it's, you know, two games and, you know, Lynn Sanity was a thing that happened. But I, I think what you're seeing from Ollie Gordon is like 
superstar realizing their potential in the making. He's got all the physical tools. He's got the intangibles with the vision. I mean, his his jump cut, which you mentioned, but it's kind of like a shuffle in a way. It's because he's not the most explosive lateral athlete, but it just is, it's profound watching him, uh, how many people take his downhill speed too lightly. Like he's constantly getting guys taking bad angles on him. And it, I think it has to do with like the length of his stride but people don't take good angles on him. And I mean, that that second touchdown run he had, I think Oklahoma State was at like the 22-yard line, and it was kind of up the middle, and he bounced it immediately out to the sideline and then straight back up. It's a lot of bad angles, but it's a great athletic play from Ollie Gordon. So I think people can't defend him. I think he knows that. and <laughs> I cannot wait to see what he continues to do. He's He's the best running back, I think, in college football. Right now, like I would be comfortable saying that after this, he, this many games. He's getting recognized for it. Big 12, well, co-Big co 12 Offensive Player of the Week last week, Big 12 Offensive Player of the Week this week, and he's been the Doak Walker running back of the week two weeks in a row. So he's getting recognized. He gets the ESPN helmet sticker, I think, two weeks in a row. So it's just been, it's been awesome to see him get these accolades. And I know that they're starting to sell like the jerseys Again, the NIL collective. Yep. And they've got their own special shirt now for OG2. I think it says Run Ollie Run on it. <laughs> so those are pretty cool. And I, I think they're going to, people are going to be buying them. I think they're going to fly off the shelves now. Kate, I've got some, because you and I, I, I don't know, maybe some of the listeners don't find it in, at, that interesting, but I know you and I like to compare to last year's running back. Quarter, totally. And I know Ollie Gordon was a part of that, but because it was, Everybody always blames the offensive line, but the running backs were bad last year. And so we like to kind of compare back to that. Ollie had eight rushes of 10 plus yards in this game. Dominic Richardson had 12 all of last season in nine games. The running backs total last season, including Ollie, had 27 rushes of 10 plus yards all season. Ollie has 20 in Big 12 play. Yeah, that, that'll do. Ollie has 30 missed tackles for us this year. Dom had 33 all of last year in nine games. It's just, he's, it, the difference of having a running back, not only your offensive line not being injured, but you can see, we thought, you know, the loss of Spencer Sanders was going to be a huge blow to this offense. And, and, I'm not saying Spencer Sanders wasn't a great portion of this offense. He carried the offense a lot of times last year, but it's because they didn't have a solid running game right. due to the offensive line and the running backs. And now that they have the offensive line staying healthy and continuity there and just playing, I think executing a little bit better. And then the emergence of Ollie Gordon, like you said, you don't have to have the all-star carry the team on his back QB. When, when the offensive line is pass protecting and blocking well and you're running back and make guys miss. Gundy's talked about it all the time, Cade. You can't block everybody. If a linebacker's shooting the gap, the offensive line doesn't have time to break off a double team and get up to them. You have to have a running back that can make one guy miss. And Ali has made one guy miss in the backfield. He's made guy one guy miss at the second level. Or when he does get the blocks at the second level, he's scoring a 50-yard touchdown. Right. And that's what you need in a running back. 
Yeah, I mean, it, I think he fits this offense to an absolute T. I think, you know, what's interesting about Ollie Gordon is he was a four-star recruit. He was one of the centerpieces of that class. But, like, he wasn't a blue chip. Like, he wasn't Derrick Henry coming out of high school. And, and he plays football like Derrick Henry. And so, to me, Dustin, I think it's another testament to Oklahoma State's developmental prowess to take what Ollie Gordon was who is a very capable, like, you know, he's got the physical tools. Can he put it all together and become an elite running back? I think the elite part is where Oklahoma State has developed him into. He's going to be a first-round pick. I mean, and I don't know if that happens in the NFL anymore, but if it does, it's for guys like Ollie Gordon. I just can't wait, Kate, until the combine so they can His show measurables. that he's six foot four. His measurables <laughs> are going to be ridiculous. One. Yeah, for he's sure. not six foot one. He's absolutely I mean, may- Maybe he's not that much taller than six foot one, but he's definitely not six foot one. So it's it's awesome. Yeah, Kate, I think you laid that out perfectly. I wanted to hit a couple of Ollie quotes from after the game. He shouted out his offensive line again uh, 10 seconds into the postgame availability. He loves those guys. You saw the clip I put on Twitter right after the touchdown, not celebrating. He just ran right to the offensive line and was high-fiving them all, talking to them. They're all laughing. So that was really cool. His quote from... He said Coach Wozniak says this to them all the time. Sometimes when asked about running through the middle of the defense and how like how you just kind of get through all the commotion, he said sometimes you get through the smoke. When you run through the smoke hard, people don't want to tackle you. So I love that saying from Coach Woz. And then they asked him about at the end of the game when he didn't just go straight into the end zone. He was like, yeah, I was, I was trying to run a little clock, but I was definitely going to score no matter what. <laughs> Well, it was with what, like three minutes left too. Like it was a yeah. long time left on the clock. I appreciate that from him. But like speaking of the running hard thing, I was going to mention this earlier. How much does he break the first tackle? Like it's got to be above, you know, 70%. I, I don't know if you have charted that, but on average, yeah, well, it feels like he's just never getting brought down by the first guy. So his yards after contact is on the season 538 of his 816 yards are after contact yeah so there you go i mean that that was actually a pretty good guess on my part it it seems like he it seems like he does not get brought down on the first uh initial hit and as it gets as he gets further and further down the field he becomes harder to bring down so that's kind of the derrick henry like downhill ability that i'm talking about is like once he gets that step, it almost feels like it's over or he's getting 30 at a minimum. So the offensive line yeah. deserves a lot of credit in that regard. But Ollie Gordon's physical ability like, is what could take this season to you know, what we thought it ultimately could have been at the beginning. Shout out to PFF for having that stat pulled up. And also, screw you to PFF for counting a drop for Ollie on that pass from Alan Bowman where he was trying to check That's, down to him and threw it over his head because I think he threw it over his head on purpose. Cause he knew Ollie was going to get crushed, but counting that as a drop is a travesty. Yeah. Those are offsetting. So uh, next week PFF will get right after it, but those are offsetting compliments right there. I did Cade before we move on. Cause we haven't hit on it. And I do think it's a quote from Gundy that we need to just address. He said that Ollie Gordon came to them after the non-conference and said, look, if y'all, give, if y'all will give me the ball, 
will do a better job running the ball. And that's not disrespect to Nixon or Collins. He just said, if you give me the ball, I can put you guys on my back. Yeah. And he does. It's not just talk. He actually does it. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, there's so many runs that were good. We don't have to go through all of them. I think we've talked about enough, but onto the wide receivers, Cade. I think let's start with our guy, Brennan Presley. He led the team in targets with 10. He caught nine of those. That's a JPR catch percentage right there. Nine catches for 62 yards and a touchdown. He had 56 yards after the catch. He's the only guy in the receiving core core that's consistently getting yards after the catch every game when he gets the ball. That's what you need. That's, that's why we say get him the ball. And I know he has, has had some issues on special teams. I know he's had some fumble issues in the past, but you almost take that when you get 56 of your 62 yards after the catch. Yeah. Is a little bit of that, like the byproduct of the scheme and the amount of curls, flats, you know, comebacks that the outside receivers are running and they're moving Presley around much more. They're he's the crosser guy feels like a little bit of that is just a byproduct in a way. Like it's, it's not to knock what you said just seems like that would be expected if you watch just the perimeter guys and just the interior guys. Yeah, no, 100%. It's a great call out. I had him with a drop, Cade. So PFF has four drops in this game, and I also had four drops. I didn't count Ollie's, and I counted one for Presley that they didn't count. It was not a great throw from Bowman. It was in the red zone. Presley ran, basically it was just a zone route. is kind of like a stick route. He got to where... West Virginia had a gap in their zone and turned around. Saw Josiah Johnson run a similar route later in the game on a third and eight. Bowman threw it a little to the right, but Presley, it hit him in the hands, and then the guy hit him and he dropped it. Bowman's Bowman's not going to throw a perfect pass every time. You're a wide receiver. You should catch the ball. I'm going to count that as a drop because I think he should have caught that. I would would 100% agree with that. Felt like a drop in the moment. Yeah, so even watching it back, and they gave different angles, so it was easy to see. So that was my one knock on him. Like you just talked about, all of his, all nine of his receptions were less than 10 yards down the field. I loved how they mixed him in different ways. So there was one time they lined him up at running back, and they actually had Ollie in the slot. They also ran a split zone RPO with him, which is normally something they run with a tight end or a fullback. So where he fakes the split zone block, and goes out into the flat, and Bowman either gives to Ollie or keeps and does the rollout and throws to Presley, depending on what that unblocked edge player does. thought that was a nice wrinkle. They also did, they had Presley in motion, and then they pulled the backside guard, and they had Presley come like he was going to be the H-back on GH counter. He pivoted and ran back out to the flat. Bowman got pressured, so it Ended up, Presley caught it, but he only got like one yard because Bowman wasn't able to get the ball out quick enough. But that was really cool. He had the, he had two pretty good kick returns as well. He had the awesome catch near the sideline on the scramble drill with Bowman. Bowman put it in the only spot where the defender couldn't get a yep. hand on it. And Presley was able to make an awesome catch. The touchdown run was amazing. Josiah, to Neil Brown's credit, might have gotten away with a little bit of a hold there. Still an awesome run from Presley. Freaked me out a little bit when he was running into the end zone because I don't think he knew that there was a defender that close to him. 
But man, I thought his route running was great again. I thought he did a good job finding space in the zone. All around, Presley, I think, by far, was the best Oklahoma State wide receiver in this game. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree with that. I think the stats back it up. I think the impact plays additionally would lead you to that conclusion. On to the next guy, Rashad Owens. Six catches for 40 yards. He had nine targets. He's such a good blocker, and he's always blocking. Rashad Owens is hilarious because he always is doing exactly what I believe the coaches were telling him. He played slot receiver at the H in 10 personnel in this game. He also played the Z. They also lined him up at H back, and he lined up in like the fullback spot because when they were going tempo and 10 personnel, they ended up just keeping Owens and Green out there, and both of them got to kind of go back to their old position at Cowboy back on a couple of plays. But he does all of that. He blocks. He runs his routes well for the most part. And then you can see kind of the old – Lunt and I were talking about this, like the old Art Bryles offense, the backside receiver literally in the playbook for Baylor back in the day, it would say, don't do anything, do nothing on the backside. And you can go back and watch those Baylor teams. The backside receiver would literally not do anything, not block, not run around. And there's some times when Burke has a half field read and you're like, man, Owen just kind of took that playoff. Nope. He's not supposed to do anything on that play. So he's not doing anything. I just, he's, he's probably, he's got to be done in Gundy's favorite receiver. He just literally does Seems anything like he's it. told. And he does it awesome. Yeah, I would, I would think so. I think the Tracy Moore comp will go down as one of my greater comparisons, especially when he makes a major catch in Bedlam. I think that that was dead on. But additionally, what he does without the ball in his hands, I think is, uh, uh, it, it's easily missed, but I think if you pay attention and go back, you'll see exactly how valuable Rashad Owens is. I had him with a drop. So does PFF on that slant. He did have that defender on his back, but he actually got free, which was awesome by him. Good body control. And then the ball hit him in the hands. Tough catch should have been a penalty, but you got to catch that. And you know, when Bowman only has 12 incompletions and you have four of them are drops, it's, it's kind of like last game. It's like, man, you're yeah. talking about a 75% completion percentage if they just catch those balls. Yeah. So uh, on DeBray, he had four catches for 53 yards and a TD on five targets. So a good catch percentage there. This is first touchdown on a reception since the Fiesta Bowl. He And he had some injury issues last year. He's been so much – I know I mentioned it last week. He's been so much better as a run blocker. There was uh, the GT counter bash. He's blocked. Blaine Green blocked awesome on that play as well. But Bray is blocking a guy in the end zone. They were on like the 20-yard line. He blocked him all the way down into the end zone. So that was awesome. He drew the DPI on that deep ball because he had the guy beat. So that was awesome there. Really good route late in the second quarter. It's a post curl. So the receiver will kind of – it's like a zone beater. The receiver will fake like he's running a deep post, a James Washington post and curl back around. He f- did a great job finding the uh, kind of the free spot of the defense. I thought, you know, the reverse didn't work, but that wasn't really his fault. I thought this was a good game from him. But he, not to get to the Cincinnati preview early, but he's going to need to be great in the Cincinnati game. The one thing I will note about Bray, he left the game, and Blaine Green went to X for a few plays, and then Leon Johnson came in. 
and Bray never came back. And I went back and made sure I was right on that. Even the kneel down at the end of the game, Leon Johnson is out there. So I haven't heard anything about an injury for him. I'm assuming it's not serious or we probably would have heard something by now. But I did think it was a pretty good game for Bray, even though his numbers aren't eye-popping. I love the pick route that he scored the TD on. Yeah, it was good to see him finally, you know, pop in in a certain way. I thought the downfield catch was it's an extremely difficult catch. I, I think that kind that. of Sorry. shows off the athletic, you know, ability that we've spoken about so much with him that we haven't yet seen. But he is as good down the field on those go routes as I think it gets, you know, outside of a true like Des Bryant, Justin Blackman. I mean, he's really, really good at that. I think it's the other stuff that he could, you know, polish up a little bit. But four targets seems like that's right in his sweet spot for this year. Four to five. I'll say, Dustin, I I really would have liked to see what this offense looks like right now with a Dijon Stribling. Rashad Owens has done a great job filling in. But what does this look like with a dynamic wide receiver that can do all of that at that spot? I don't know. Stribling could go for 150 and two touchdowns against Cincinnati if he was playing. But that's a different story. One more note on Bray, Cade. The fade ball from Bowman that he, I didn't count it as a drop because the defender was right there. That was a perfect fade pass. Bray has to bring that. He can't just run straight into the DB. He's got to bring him inside a little bit and then kind of like a fade route in the red zone isn't a straight line like you think like a go route would be you want to take that db inside a little bit shield them with your body and work back outside to where bowman can drop it in a bucket over his head that's what you see in practice when they have those nets in the back corner of the end zone that's for that pass i thought bowman that might have been his best fade throw of the year oh yeah so i wanted to count that as a drop but i didn't because it was a good play by the db but to your point yeah that stuff bray just got to clean up but I think he will. Leon Johnson, he had one good block and he had two whiffs. I'm going to be worried if Bray is hurt and he has to play against Cincinnati because I think the outside receivers need to have a big game. I still just think he's probably a year away. And I kind of want him to not play so he can get that red shirt because it sounds like they cleared that he can get it. So last receiver we talk about, Shetron, three catches, 36 yards on six targets. He left with injury. It sounds like Robert Allen is saying that it's serious and Gundy made it sound like it wasn't. So I don't really know who to believe there. You know, Kate, his routes when he's running a true route. So he's pretty good at finding the holes in the zone. He Bowman hit him twice on cover two beaters where he just kind of sits in between the flat and the deep safety in cover two hit him twice there. But there was a curl route early that was sloppy. He had, I counted him with two drops and so did PFF. There was the red zone play where the defensive back has inside leverage. So he's either running the slant or like the little fade route there. And Bowman, I think Bowman hand got hit there anyway. So I doubt it would have got completed because if you saw the ball come out, it was like flopping around like (laughs) a duck, but the, the route was run wrong. Like I said, the two drops, I know Bowman probably could have put a little bit more velocity on the one to the sideline so he doesn't have to take that hit. But again, like I said with Presley, you're a wide receiver. Right. Your job is to catch the ball. It's You know, I get on kickers about kicking it. Wide receivers got to catch it. So yeah. I just, man, I love Talon Shetran. I think he has a ton of talent. 
but the effort on some of the routes, effort on some of his blocks, he just has not impressed me in snaps yeah. this year. And I know he's still young. I'm still, I'm still optimistic that he can find it. But I, I now see why they went with Owens whenever Stribling went down. And I think when you look at like the way a Tylen Wallace, a uh, James Washington, when they got snaps early on in their career, they popped and they they did some youthful things, but it didn't come off as like, a, you know, at times like Talon Chetron straight up doesn't catch the ball. Sometimes it seems like he'll take a play off, like not to knock a kid individually, but there was kind of this belief that or maybe it's a hope that he would come in and fit that bill and be the next, you know, great Oklahoma state wide receiver. I think he can still do that, but there have been more, I think concerns for him than I've had with any of those others previously. And some of them do stem around, you know, effort. And, you know, does he get nervous going over the middle to catch a football? Because it kind of seems like he does. So we'll see how that changes for him, but totally agree with your point that I get why they went with Owens in hindsight. Yeah, I, it's it, you'd like to see more for sure from him. So as we move on to the tight ends, Josiah, we've actually talked about him quite a bit. Gundy talked about how Josiah Johnson and Braden Casty have considerably changed in the past four weeks. He basically just talked to them about you, you just kind of have to be reckless and disregard your body. And you see that from these two guys. They are playing so physical. I, I've loved what I've seen from these guys. Josiah just had the one target. He had the catch. It was awesome on third and eight. Most snaps where he ran a route this season also is one of his highest snap totals. So it kind of makes sense. You know, he has a he had the great block on the very first play of the game on the screen. Then he had a whiff later on the screen block. So you're still seeing that kind of up and down, but he's asked to block so much in space. He's obviously going to have some whips whiffs here and there. I thought he was really good. I think that I'm Maybe was a little, you know, I was a kind of see it to believe it guy thinking that they were really going to truly play a tight end, get him involved in the passing game, but he's had several targets this year. He's think he's had a catch in every game almost. It's just, he's been really good. And I loved what I've seen Cassidy again, some really good blocks. He had a great block on the first Ollie touchdown. The only thing I'll say about the tight ends of fullbacks, Cade, before I throw it back to you, I don't see the points of diamond formation with Cassidy and Schultz when you're not, unless you're in the red zone or short yarded that's, situation. That's what I was going to say. The, they ran three plays on their side of the field with Cassidy and Schultz. I'm fine with diamond formation, but you could use Josiah. You could use Owens. You could use green. I just think having the two, two fullbacks out there in non short yarded situations just basically tells the defense, okay, they only have two guys on the field outside of the running back that they might throw the ball to. That's a good way to look at it. I would agree that it, you know, my my preferred uh, utilization of it is if you're not going to be under center at the goal line, go into the diamond. Like, that's when it makes sense to me. But in between the 20s, I don't see a whole lot of use for it especially if you're able to run out of your base set, utilize some of the pistol, like you don't need to do that. You can, you know, disguise some of your cover or your, your blocking schemes rather without the need to, you know, uh, tip your hand that I can only throw to these real two guys or, 
more than likely I'm only going to throw to these two guys. So, yeah, I'd even rather Quentin Stewart out there as one of them. I just don't see the point of having Cassidy and Schultz out there. No knock on those guys. They're both great blockers. I'm fine with both of them playing. I think they're useful. Cassidy's shown that he's a great blocker. But yeah, that, that's just my one knock. But I think that's all I really had on those guys, Kate. If you want to just kind of wrap it up with Bowman, even yep. though we've talked about him quite a bit already. it's yeah, great. So he wore another jersey post-game. He had the Barry Sanders jersey. He said, stay tuned for next week. So I'm going to be interested to see what he continues to wear there. He talked about how West Virginia runs a lot of cover three variations. We talked about in the preview how they do a lot of zone. He said they ran a little bit more man than he was expecting. And they were doing a good job of, they did a good job of watching film because we know Oklahoma State has run a lot of the same route concepts. They were covering up his first two reads and he'd have to move to read three or read four on multiple occasions. And we saw him do that and sometimes even get to the point where he had a couple throwaways. My thing here is we talked about having a smart kind of yep. game manager QB. No knock on Rangel, no knock on Gunner. But if you have one of those two out there in this game with minimal experience or not the, not the amount of experience that Bowman has, then the way West Virginia was playing these route concepts probably have led to either those guys trying to scramble a lot, some sacks, or even some throws into coverage, especially a guy like Gunner, who we know they were running a lot of half-field reads with when he played earlier this year. So that's that, that was kind of the main quote where I was like, man, I, I'm glad that Alan Bowman solidified himself as QB1 because I think the a younger QB or, or a Gunner Gundy type QB that's run kind of a first read, not their run, would have really struggled in this game. Yeah, it's a, a great point from you. And I, as we've talked about the desire for a game manager like quarterback, I think obviously you lose some, you know, downfield taking the top off the defense, you know, blowing the top off with your legs too. I think what you get is plays like that that don't show up in the stat sheet. You live to fight another down. Those are plays that Spencer Sanders turned the ball over on. Those are plays that he felt like he had to do something. I think his... Last year in Stillwater was the best he was at that, and yet he still did it. Like, repeatedly. It was still a repeated issue. You remember Arizona State, that throw he made over the middle. It's like, dude, you can't do those things. So, to to me, this is everything I wanted out of Alan Bowman. I think that I'd love to see him get a chance to throw the ball deep more. I think he's got a better deep ball than we've been allowed to see. But uh, to me, he's done everything. Like he forced the pick. Also, oh, yeah. the, it, I, like, I said, I feel that. like he forced that. I feel like it was basically like, like you and I were like controlling him on Madden and like, we got to take a shot. We haven't taken one all game. Oh, and can you, I'm sure when that call comes in and you're thinking, oh, I've was that, I think that was the second drive out of halftime and they did not score on the first and Alan Bowman's feeling like, okay, the call's in, I'm making a big play right here. It's understandable how it happens. But what I think is even more impressive is it doesn't compound on itself. It doesn't make one mistake into two, into three. You come right back, you hand it to your, you know, bell cow running back and you put up 35 after that. So, yeah. And, and I get, you don't want the pick. I'm not saying that pick was bad. He, it was a high, low concept. And I think he, I think he thought for sure the safety was going to bite on the dig. Like he didn't even check. He just threw the deep ball because if the safety bites on the dig because they're in that kind of cover three zone, then Owens is wide open up the middle. Yeah. If the safety bites on that dig, 
he just didn't even check. He just was like, this is going to work. It probably worked against the scout team in practice. And he just reared back and threw it. So the pick was bad, but Cade, that's the only play. And I'm, you know, I'm pretty, I like to give away the turnover worthy play to the quarterback did a lot with Spencer Sanders. And I do, I always have more than what PFF has. I didn't even have another one where he was close for, to me counting him as a turnover worthy play besides that throw. He's, I think, do you think Mike Gundy has like a framed Alan Bowman Jersey in his house because <laughs> of that fact right there that like, that's He's, what I, I have to believe that this is exactly what Mike Gundy wants out of a quarterback like Spencer Sanders. Yes, the dynamic athletic ability, but to protect the football, allow the offense to run. This has to be what Mike Gundy wants. Yeah, he's <clears throat> unlike Whedon, who I know Gundy said didn't practice well. And then Rudolph, who was breaking a bunch of Gundy records. You know, he doesn't like that. And then you got Sanders who doesn't take care of the ball. Now he's like, this guy takes care of the ball and he's probably not going to break any more of my records. So That's why he spoke so I highly about Clint Shelf all those years. I, no, I love it. He uh, So West Virginia, I had them bringing five pressures or five or more and PFF counted 10 dropbacks where he was blitzed. So 26%. This is the second highest blitz rate since Bowman took over as a starter. The first was KSU with 31. So we've now seen him get blitz because most teams aren't going to go over 40. So 31 and 26 are a decent amount of blitzes. And we've seen him handle it pretty well. Only under pressure on 18% of his dropbacks compared to 29 against KU. The pass protection was amazing. Like we talked about, only four passes attempted 20-plus yard downfield. He, he hit on the one to Bray, which was beautiful, and a great catch by Bray. And then he threw the pick on that also. I had a couple of notable throws. There was an early comeback to Owens. It wasn't like the best throw ever, but he threw it away from the DB in a spot where he knew Owens had the ability to catch it with his catch radius. I just think he does a really good job of that more often than not. Josiah talked about how he, his looked like a really good catch on that third and eight, but Allen's throwing it to where it's not going to be near that defender that's behind Josiah. So it's not the best throw, but that's a zone beater. It's not like he's going to a set spot. He's just going to sit in the zone. So Allen's throwing it where he thinks he's going to sit. I just, th those throws are just anticipation throws and trusting your guy while still putting it to where it's a low percentage chance that it's going to be picked off. So I love stuff like that. You know, the draw RPO, you, you can tell he really does not want to get hit. And I don't blame him at all with all the injuries. Because if he just runs behind the blockers, they might have pushed him forward for like a first down. And he ends up getting, I think, five yards on that because he went, he ran directly sideways yeah. and dove. But um, the deep ball to Bray, like I said, was beautiful. I thought the fade ball that was dropped, the TD on the pick rub. I loved that formation with the tight end fullback and running back and trips one way. I loved that throw. It wasn't a, he didn't lead him, but he hit him right in the stomach to where he could just fall backwards into the end zone. And like I said, coming off the read. So I really, Cade, when you look through his incompletions, you have the throwaway early on a W on a West Virginia blitz. You had I had a bad throw. There was the high throw in the check down. I thought Bray could have caught the fade ball. I had two drops from Shetron, the Owens drop on the slant. There was a really good play on a slant to Green, where the other thing about that is I don't know how many reps Bowman and Green have on RPOs where he's at the X because that's where Bray went out for a second. 
They had a throwaway where he almost got destroyed by the safety blitzing. And then there was a slip slash bad throw on a curl. But as you hear me read through those, I mean, you got the four drops, two throwaways. That's six of his 12 right there that you could probably have back. Yeah. And I I think that there were some throws. I looked at one, you know, specifically to Josiah Johnson. I think it was like third and nine. And it was a pivotal part of the game. Johnson runs a good route, but it's a it's a uh, trusting throw to make. Like I feel like in in you know some of those where it's like okay yeah not the most perfect throw they were made up for in other areas that one specifically stood out. Yeah, and he always puts the ball like where the guy can catch it. Right, right. It's not like they're making diving catches. So it's it's just trusting your guys and getting that work in. A lot of play action in this game too. PFF had it at forty one percent of his dropbacks actually had it at 47 where there was some type of rpo or play action so all in all i think i didn't think it was a flawless game from bowman but 210 yards two tds one pick 67 percent completion and he had the four drops i i think his get his game was actually really solid it's just obviously overshadowed and rightfully so by ollie gordon's performance yeah i i would absolutely agree with that you know for me like I think Alan Bowman, I even thought he would be more turnover prone than he is. It's so kind of polar opposite of what Spencer Sanders did that, you know, when we talked to Adam Lunt in the offseason, it was he turned the ball over quite a bit at Texas Tech. He was throwing it 60 times a game, but he threw several interceptions in that system. I think he's been even more turnover averse than I expected. So, like, this is. I I just I'll just end the Alan Bowman segment by saying he's been everything I could have wanted out of him when they when they brought him in. That's what I would have hoped for. Yeah. And this is what it looked like at that practice I was at. So that's why I was so shocked when we went in with the three QB rotation, because this is how the offense looked, how these games are going. It makes less against Oklahoma State's own defense. But yeah, it's it's wild. But Kate, I think. Should we do a quick ad break and then we'll move on to the defense? Yep. We will hear from one quick sponsor. We'll get right back on the defense. We want to say a quick thank you to sponsor the Feels Like 45 podcast, Classic Overland. Classic Overland specializes in restoring original Land Rover Defenders designed with your unique style and specifications. They go to great lengths to find quality vintage defenders before they begin the restoration process, and their team of experts will guide you through the various exterior and interior options to create the perfect build. Our friends Luke Reed and Robert Dennis of Classic Overland are both Oklahoma State graduates and will work with you through the process to ensure you have a great experience. And in addition, if you purchase a Classic Overland Defender and mention this podcast, the Feels Like 45 podcast, their team will donate a portion of the proceeds to the Pokes with a Purpose NIL Collective. To learn more, you can visit their website, classicoverland.com, and you can contact Luke and Robert at robert at classicoverland.com. Thank you, and go Pokes! All right, Dustin, welcome back. Defensively, second game in a row, Oklahoma State's given up over 30 points. Second game in a row, they've given up more than 450 yards, but less than 500 yards. And this time, Dustin, West Virginia is able to be a little more balanced offensively. They converted on several key third downs. 
Oklahoma State made several big plays in the game. But ultimately, I left this one wanting a little bit more from the defensive side of the ball. Yeah, it was it was interesting. It was like half the defense played awesome, certain players. Then there were a couple guys who let up several busts, just or, or they're just young guys that we we've talked about this. Guys like Epps and Dylan Smith. I'm glad they're getting the reps. We're still winning these games, but they're obviously going to make mistakes. They're red shirt and true freshmen out there at safety where they're sometimes the last line of defense. The defensive line, we only see 15 snaps from Kirkland, and I think that was a scheme type thing. Maybe he's a little banged up, but we can, we'll can we talk about that part a little bit more. So th- that's a guy who you and I have loved all season. He only gets 15 snaps. You see some more snaps from guys like Xavier Ross, who I don't think performed that well. You see Anthony Goodlow play really good again. Walter Scheid maybe take a step back. So it was just... It's just been a little all over the mess, depending on what game you look at this season for the defense. But I did like some of the interesting things they were doing in this game. One of the things I talked about on Twitter is pretty much all season, they've lined, when they've gone odd front, they've lined the nose tackle up in a zero tack, which is head up the center, directly in front of the center. We talk about that a lot when we talk about Joe Mahalski having to block those guys. So Colin Clay lined up as a defensive tackle. So either a two technique. So technique would be head up the guard. Three technique would be right outside the guard's shoulder on 12 snaps. He hasn't lined up in that position more than two snaps in any other game this season. And then Kirkland did it on four snaps. So 16 snaps. They had the nose tackle. They had an odd front personnel out there, but they were running an even front. And I think, Cade, my analysis on this, and I've heard, I heard Robert Allen talk about it a little bit on the radio too. He had a little bit different thoughts on it. But West Virginia center, we talked about him last week, Zach Frazier. He's really good. If you line up a true nose, especially Colin Clay, who is a strong guy, but maybe not, the str- not as strong as Justin Kirkland, Frazier is one of the strongest centers in the Big 12. He could just move him off and shove him out of the play. Now, when you move to a two-tech, or even though he was lined up as a one-tech sum in this game, which PFF doesn't chart that, but it's not the true zero, so it's different than what they've been doing as well. So even more than the 12 snaps. But one-tech just direct a little bit off the center. It makes that center have to kind of come towards the nose tackle to kind of help double-team if he doesn't think the guard can handle him by himself. And then depending on which way the center is blowing the Mike linebacker, Nick Martin, can now see what the center is doing, and that might give him a better idea which way the play is flowing. So I really liked it. I think it worked a lot of the times. The only problem was, Cade, Gundy mentioned this after the game as well, and I, I have the plays noted where this happened. There were a couple of times where they shifted like this, and West Virginia was in kind of an unbalanced set, heavier to the boundary, and Oklahoma State had nobody over to the boundary except the cornerback. Yep. And one safety 10 yards off the ball. And West Virginia, those were their runs that were like 10 or so yards, either by Green or by Johnson or by Donaldson. So it was it was an interesting wrinkle, and it, I think it worked for the most part. Yeah, I, th- I love the breakdown there because I think that was one of the bigger things that I had circled was, you know, the the run game I felt like defensively was, you know, 
probably the worst in South Alabama. I think like statistically that I think that that would check out. But even watching it, it was like, you know, man, it feels like Oklahoma State can't get these guys behind the chains. It was either like West Virginia busted and they, you know, first to 10, second, nine, third and eight punt, which rarely happened. But West Virginia was additionally able to convert on a bunch of third downs that uh, either by penalty or by an off schedule type of run play that shouldn't have gone for eight yards, nine yards. And I think those are probably some of the plays you're referring to Dustin that, yeah, it, it's nice to know what happened because it feels correctable. However, it's frustrating in the moment. There's no question. And it's so weird because green is, we mentioned green can run the ball. And what we thought Oklahoma state might try to do is take, try to take away the run and play a lot of man coverage. And they did play a lot of man coverage again. They did mix in zone, but they played a lot of man coverage again. And even though green throws for 249 yards and two TDs, he throws one pick. I had him with three turnover worthy plays and he only completes 50% of his passes. So it ends up working out again. Now he does rush even with the sack excluded for 114 yards. And that's where most of their yards came from on the ground because Kate. We do this with Ollie Gordon all the time, so I'm going to do it with the opponent. If you take away Johnson's 30-yard run, then West Virginia had 26 running back carries for 81 yards. That's only 3.1 yards per carry. Yep. Even with that run, 4.1 isn't egregious from the running backs. It was all green. Right. I mean, he was the problem, and they're going to face another quarterback that can run like that again this week in Emory Jones, who they've played before. But... I'm not I'm not overly mad about Green's rushing because it's just there were a couple busts that should have been back, but when you play a running quarterback like that, he's gonna scramble. He's gonna scramble for some yards. Unless you just put four Colin Oliver speed level players out there, he's gonna rush for some yards. So it's it's a give and a take. They still won the game. I thought overall the defense was good enough, obviously, to win. But yeah, it was it was interesting to see kind of how they changed a little bit from what they were doing against KU, but kind of still kept a similar game. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you know, to me, Dustin, I think yes, Emory Jones is that way, but it doesn't seem like Cincinnati has like, you know, West Virginia's identity offensively kind of starts and ends with Garrett green and his ability to mix up the run and pass. Cincinnati does a couple of different things with him. I think, Man, it's a good comp because, like, they're both kind of average at both, maybe better at the running than the throwing. But it'll be interesting to see what they do against Emory Jones, who they've seen before in a different scheme. Yeah. And then obviously, that touchdown late, Gundy, Gundy said he went straight to Nardo on the headset and was like, Hey, we can't run prevent against a running QB. He's just going to scramble. <laughs> so that drive was not great. I believe it was the. It was in the fourth quarter. It was when they went like 70 yards in like two minutes. Yeah, it was like nine minutes left in the fourth quarter when they got, or sorry, six. They went 75 yards in three minutes. That's the drive I'm talking about. So that was, uh, or in, sorry, a minute and 30 seconds in the fourth quarter, 75 yards in a minute and 30 seconds. You can't, you can't do that against a running quarterback. That's just not going to work out. But that's, that's another learning experience. I thought, 
West Virginia with all their unbalanced and heavy sets, they hadn't done that a lot this year. And Neil Brown even mentioned that was kind of their game plan going in. It sprung green and like I said, the 130 yard run from Johnson, they had one other 17 yard running back run and it sprung green several times on the zone read. So that was, I mean, great tweak by them. I almost, he also mentioned Oklahoma state using that kind of even front with their odd personnel. So I think that kind of screwed them up a little bit. I think the tackling Cade has been so much better. I had four missed tackles. I believe PFF had five unless they've updated that since. Oh, it looks like they've updated that to six. Okay. So they have six. I had four. So not very many. You know, like I said, it, a lot of young guys played. We talked about the moving the nose around. They played a lot of man. In zone, they played some cover two, which we haven't seen a ton of in the past few weeks. And then they blitzed green, according to PFF, on 42% of his dropbacks. That's the highest bliss percentage Oklahoma State has blitzed an opposing QB this year. So I thought that was a little interesting too. So we kind of saw the Nardo blitz game a little bit in this one. I would like to see the percentage of Garrett Green's run production on improvisation versus design because it felt like, Dustin, when I was watching it, that everything they got was by design. And so that kind of backs up your Oklahoma State blitz. It was almost a 50-50 split. Oh, yeah? So So there you go. 58 yards scrambling, 60 on designed runs per PFF. And, you know, Sometimes they're not a hundred percent on yeah, some of that well, stuff. Well, so there, so there you go. It's six fifty fifty split is fine. We'll we'll use that as as a talking point. However, you know, Dustin, I think you would have lived with you know sixty yards, even eighty yards out of a design set. It's the scrambles that'll kill you. And so Oklahoma State blitzing that much, I'm sure that even with the tackling, they would have liked to have been able to get to the quarterback a little bit more. Yeah, I agree. I'm ready to move on to the players, Kate, if you are. I don't yep. have a ton of notes on the defensive line outside from Goodlow. It was another game where I thought, you know, they're going up against Green, who's a great scrambler. It would have been great for them to get to him a little bit more, but, I mean, what do you want these big 280-pound right. guys to do? So I've got to be critical. they got to get more pressure on quarterbacks like this because they're going to continue to face guys like Emory Jones guys like Dylan Gabriel that can move a little bit in the pocket. So they've got to do a better job of getting pressure. So I have the same critique as last week for them there. I I think the linebackers led again with pressures. Goodlow had the sack. So I did think Goodlow was good. He had the sack. There was a tight end screen where Martin had a pressure. I think it was on like, I think it was right after the fumbled punt and Goodlow was all over it. He, bounced off his block and saw that the tight end Cole Taylor was going to get the ball and just stayed right on him. I think he does a good job of eating up double teams. You know, normally you think about the nose guard doing that, but he just kind of crashes through the line sometimes slanting through and just takes up multiple blockers and doesn't let them get to the linebackers. I think he's quietly been one of the better defensive linemen this season. Yeah. I think that's a great call. And especially as you look at guys on the second level and Nick Martin who are benefiting from that, I mean, 17 tackles in this game, like that's, that's part of their job. Yeah. Uh, just to run, I'll kind of run through Cade mine and then I'll flip it back over to you yeah. just so we, cause there's not, I don't have that many notes on each guy. Walter Scheid, I thought he was okay against the run. I, he didn't really 
do anything against the pass. And, you know, some of those rushes, they're probably telling him to just kind of contain Green. But I, he didn't even really do that great of a job of that. He does always fire off the ball well. He tries to eat up blockers. I think it's just, you know, he's... I think Goodlow maybe is just a little bit more talented than him all around. But I, I thought he had an okay game. I thought Latou getting a little bit more snaps this game. I thought he was solid for the most part. He had a few good pass rushes. He would have had a sack in the end zone if he doesn't get held on that play that didn't get called. He's in like a headlock. Ross, he made one good tackle on the second in the second quarter on the sideline, but he also was getting like pushed so far off the line of scrimmage. That's why he was over there. He only played 14 snaps, and man, I, I just think against some of these better offensive lines, if he's in there on run snaps, he just isn't he just isn't strong enough. He's more of a I think he almost reminds me more of like a Jaden Jernigan pass rusher type guy at that defensive tackle, defensive end spot, because he, he kind of got bullied a little bit. But I love Ross. He's a big energy guy. And then Brown only had five snaps. Johnson only had eleven. I don't have any like big time notes on them. I feel like Jaleel Johnson is a guy that could make a big play late. It's totally not scientific, but I feel like when he comes in, it's like you see you see him on the field. He's very active, and I don't know, just something to keep an eye on. Nose tackles, uh, 15 snaps for Kirkland. I, I didn't have any, like, I'm not going to make a big take on a guy on 15 of 70. What was it? They ran 74 plays, 15 of 74 plays. Didn't really have any huge takeaways. Clay was good, not great. I don't think. I did think it was cool to see him attacking in different ways. He did a pretty good job of eating up double teams. Obviously, he's not going to do a ton in the pass rush from the nose tackle spot, but I thought moving him into that one, two, and three techniques, you would have seen him make a few more plays than he did since he's not in that true nose, and he didn't on those snaps, really. So... I thought he was good, but I just I think the defensive line was just okay all around. Good enough, not great. But again, you're facing a running quarterback and you're a three down odd front. So what are you gonna do? Yeah, is good enough, not great kind of the the prevailing thought on the defensive line this this far into the season? They've had some good moments, some not good moments. I I almost think they've gotten as the rest of the team has kind of gone up. They've kind of plateaued and maybe yeah. even stepped down a smidgen. I, yeah. I t- they're not bad. And I still think Clay and Kirkland are good at nose tackle. I'm not, I wasn't trying to bash Clay there. I just, you're not seeing a ton of plays made by the other guys. But again, it's a three down odd front. A lot of the times they're just eating up the offensive line and letting the linebackers run free. So you got to take that into account. But I, d- I do think it's a great call out by you. Yeah, I think this would look a lot different if you had a Will McDonald running around out there that Iowa State had. And this is not that. You don't have that on the roster. I think Oklahoma State would like to. But it's it's a good point by you, Dustin, that it's a three-three-five. This is what it's designed to do. How about the linebackers? <laughs> All three combined were awesome. This... All three of them played good, so this ha- I think this has to be the best linebacker game so far. Do you think? I, yeah, I, I thought Martin, so live. Martin's maybe played, like maybe last week was a better all-around game. I thought he was awesome in this game and really, really awesome. I'm just like, I'm not saying it was Martin's best game of the season. I don't even know if it was Oliver's best game of the season. I do think it was Benson's, and I think the other two were really good as well. So I think combined, A-plus 
linebacker game. And Cade, my first note was I didn't think the defensive line ate up as many double teams and ate up as many offensive linemen this game. Martin, Oliver, and Benson were just shucking guys and making plays. Yeah, I I felt like that too. And I feel like kind of an idiot for ever having thought that Nick Martin was a little too small to like play well at this level. That's where I was. I just thought after the Central Arkansas game, it's like, man, I feel like you've taken a step back there. I I, I was straight up wrong about that because through three, four Big 12 games, I mean, it's not like Malcolm Rodriguez is running around back there, but I mean, my gosh, that guy is insane. He's so funny too. Cause like he doesn't really celebrate. Right. He, when, when you could tell when he's seen that play on film and he knows what it is, he literally is flying through the line of scrimmage with no regard for human life or, or his own life. And probably and screaming as there. we've said. Yeah. Yes. And also he wears the, long sleeves that aren't like skin muscle tight, which I always think that's funny because he's very muscular, but he just doesn't even care. He just like, Hey, that was the closest shirt to me. I'm going to throw it on. And then after the game, when they interview him, he's his quotes are just always great. The first thing he said was just, I'm really sore right now. And then they asked him they cause there was though, when Martin almost sacked green, which probably could have been a safety if he gets to him he was I, one of the reporters was like it looked like he said something to you after and he goes yeah he just said dang man you're fast so <laughs> I, I just nick martin is just a hilarious human being but 17 tackles you already noted that 1.5 tackles for loss a, a true qb hurry and then pff had him as two times hurrying the quarterback and just for clarification they're counting if the quarterback actually throws the ball and he gets completed. They're still counting that as a hurry. So he had two of those. I thought he fit the run really well. He had a really good pressure right after the uh, fumbled punt. That was awesome. And then the sack, the almost sack that I talked about in the third quarter, he was flying at green who was rolling out. I just, I thought he was incredible. I, I don't really have any critiques on him. I thought almost all positive, maybe a couple of times he got washed, but I don't even want to talk about him because he was so good. Yeah. I mean, this is for me, like Benson, I think I take back everything I said. <laughs> is that fair? Yes. This was yes. just so good in this game that it was just like, yeah. I mean, Cade, Cade and linebackers don't get along well, apparently, because my scouting has been terrible because he was just fantastic. Yeah. So Xavier Benson, six tackles. There was a play in the first quarter, first and 15, five minutes left. Does it, the tight ends come in to try to block the edge player there? Benson, he doesn't even shuck it. He just doesn't even let him touch him and tackles the running back for a loss on first and 15 on a zone run. Absolutely awesome. He had a big tackle on green in the fourth quarter that brought up that fourth down where then Daniels made the play right after that. The thing about Benson, Cade, I think where I'm at with him, and we've we've kind of, you know, we've said he doesn't pop, things like that. I think the problem with him is why it looks like, and I think maybe he is slow to react. Maybe I'm wrong on this, but I think the reason why it looks like he's slow to react is because I think that he knows his physical limitations. He is not a stop start quickness guy. 
he cannot accelerate and change direction. It's just not his body just doesn't allow him to. He's very fast. He's very athletic, but he has to be going that direction. You've talked about you talked yep. about this in the offseason. Why you thought you'd rather him at strong side linebacker than Colin Oliver, yep. which was such a good call by you because he is playing the same linebacker spot yep. and Colin's the will, which we haven't talked about a lot on here, but he's just not a stop start guy. So I'm not saying that's an excuse. But when you see him make some of these plays with his straight line speed, and now that he's processing, as we go through the season, he's starting to process this position more and more. He is a good linebacker. He just, it's just taking him a little while to catch up mentally. And because he knows he's not a quick start stop guy. That's my take anyway. Yeah, I don't, I guess I don't take back everything I said about him because I still caught him walking up on the tail end of a play. And I can't, now that I've seen it and seen it enough, I can't get it out of my head. But I, I don't know what PFF graded him as. I don't know how it stacks up on the rest of his career. I felt like this was the game that Oklahoma State needed Xavier Benson out there the most. Like, he was the most impactful I think he's been in his career. So you could say it was his best game up to this point. Again, I don't know how he was graded, but I know what I he, saw. They had to have him out there. He was graded pretty well, Cade. I'm going to take out guys that didn't play like a majority of the snaps. So we'll talk about guys that played like 50% or more of the snaps. He's the seventh highest rated player, but you got to think about the guys he's behind. Kendall Daniels, who had, we'll get to him, but he had his best game of the season. Nick Martin, Trey Rucker, who was good. Colin Oliver, DJ McKinney, who had a lot of pass breakups, which boosted his rating. And Anthony Goodlow. Those are the only guys rated above Benson according to PFF. And those are all guys that I thought played really well. So t- your point is taken. Uh, he yeah. was graded high. Yeah. Well, there you go. I, I was right without knowing it, but no, Dustin, I, I just, I think Xavier Benson for the amount of, you know, uh, he can be polarizing at times. I think he's a guy that deserves a lot of credit. Yeah. And Gundy said that he has cut up tape to show the team about 10 or 12 plays where Nick Martin and Xavier Benson were just on defense and disregarding anything about their body to make plays. So I love that. And then Colin Oliver, bunch of tackles, 10 tackles, tackle for loss. He recorded, I think he had a half sack as well. He has four hurries, which led the team on PFF. I think obviously we know he's good off the edge. They used him some in even front. They used him some in the odd front off the edge. But I thought he, after having not that great of a game, I didn't think as a true linebacker last week, I thought he improved again this week to the stuff we saw earlier this season. And Cade, there is a missed tackle he had in the second quarter on green where he had him wrapped up and he got free. And then another tackle for loss that he missed in the third quarter. If he gets those two tackles for loss, he's probably the highest graded player on the team. Yeah, I would agree. I I thought so many times, like, my gosh, they can't block Colin Oliver. But it didn't, he didn't have that many like whoa moments, but he was all over the place. He was active. I think had he not been, I wonder what the final stat line does look like for West Virginia because I thought he was all over the field. Yeah, I thought he looked good as a rusher and linebacker in this game. Whereas last game, I thought he was better as a defensive end Leo rusher. Robertson, only a few snaps, so we don't have to talk about him. Also, DJ McKinney, I think, was lined up as the Sam linebacker on one play when they were in kind of like a dime package. So we don't have to talk, we can talk about him in a minute. Yep. Get into the DBs real quick on Cam Smith. Only three snaps in this game. Again, kind of like a brace situation. I never saw an injury report on him, but I did go back and look. 
there's West Virginia ran mesh with the two crossing receivers and Hudson Clement just Cam Smith wasn't even looking because he's covering the other guy and Hudson Clement just blows him up on his mesh crosser crosser and Cam Smith never came back. So, yep. I don't know. I don't. Yeah. That's a little concerning going forward. I love DJ McKinney though. So I, I mean, I was, I think fine Your depth like, is with him concern. playing. Right. Yeah. Depth is the concern there, but I did want to mention that I don't have any info on it, but that's Yikes. what happened. And he never came back in. So, uh, Dylan Smith, I don't want to, I'm not going to go 20 bullet points on him. I'm just going to say I wrote growing pains. I, <laughs> I thought he struck. I thought he struggled pretty much everywhere. He didn't set the edge one time that led to a big Garrett green run. He got beat deep on the scramble. I will say his credit. I timed that one 5.48 seconds before green threw that ball. That's too long to put that in perspective. Colin Oliver tells the guys 2.5 when he rushes the quarterback. That's you know double that. Yeah. So you can't kill Smith for that. They got to get pressure on him. And then he had a couple of passing plays where he just gave too much cushion. That's part alignment, but that's where these guys are going to be aligned. They've got to be able to react. Just a young guy, not going to kill him. Those are my notes on Dylan Smith. Yeah, you you took the words right out of my mouth. It seems like youth, growing pains are literally what I was going to say. But I also was... I did not see a lot of people talking about the lack of pressure on that down the field. You know, people were calling it a bust. It is a bust in a way because you don't have that covered up. You almost had six seconds. That's way too long. That's not like a technical bust. You know what I mean? Like I would not chalk that up like the way we saw against Kansas. Like that was not a bust. And I feel bad that Dylan Smith is the guy that gets zeroed in on something like that. Cause he's the youngest one out there. Him and Epps are both trying their best. And then your defensive line and your linebackers get no pressure. Six seconds is just way too long. You're basically asking him to do one round of hit cardio and cover somebody yeah, at the same right, time. Six. Right. You know how many burpees I can do in six seconds? <laughs> two probably i would pass out if i had to do that but yeah it's tough it's going to be growing pains i i mean i don't know i'm not going to critique him because i'm fine with him playing if he's the best option i just know that he's a young guy and he's yep. going to have to learn on the fly we saw with kendall daniels last year we've even seen some with kendall daniels this year and he played a bunch last year and speaking of kendall daniels Cade, he was awesome yes after finally a couple of weeks struggling in coverage you know, maybe even some bad body language, but I don't think he's doing on purpose. I think he's just so big. It looks like that after he gives up a play. He was awesome against the run. He was awesome in coverage. It looked like he knew what West Virginia was doing if they tried to attack his area before they did it. They they almost were trying to avoid him as the game went on. Where he was lined up, it was like they were going the other way. Yeah, I, I thought so too. The the peanut punch, as Robert Griffin called it, uh, his, you know, fourth down play. He had the coverage on the third and short to open the game. He had the play on fourth down to end the game. I just thought the best way I could say it is it was his best game all year. It was what we had hoped to see when he moved to that position. And it makes you wonder what's ahead for him, because we've kind of maintained that there's a strong likelihood that this is getting familiar. This is him getting familiar with his new position. And then all of a sudden, 
you know, a scheme that does fit him well, like an offensive matchup, I should say, that fits him well, he pops. So it's very interesting how that works. Yeah, I he was he was so good. I, I just don't even really have that many notes because he was so good. And you covered kind of the big plays he had. Gundy mentioned that eyes-wise, like knowing where to be, this was his best game as in college. Is yeah, what his eyes didn't get violated. So. No, no tight end yeah. went over the middle. And Cole Taylor is a good player. So, Yeah, exactly. So uh, keeping going with the safeties, Trey Rucker, that was a row bounce back game. I thought he was good all over the field. He made a couple plays in coverage. His run fits are sometimes better than the linebackers. Like he's always fitting the run well. And it's, he even did that last game when he had the big coverage bus and everything. And a couple games ago, he's really good at fitting the run, which hey, we mentioned this on the last podcast. It's why I think even though he had those coverage busts, you can't replace him because he's probably the best run stopping safety on the team and maybe one of the best run stopping players on the team. Yeah, you've got to have him. He had so many uh positive open field plays, multiple drive stopping tackles uh either at the line of scrimmage just beyond to stall West Virginia. I I actually thought that this was one of his best games because he was able to make those big plays when they came to him which has not always happened in the past with him. Yeah, and and I thought he was way kind of like we talked about Daniels with his eyes. I thought Rucker was way smarter, way more, way better at reading and reacting in coverage. Like you mentioned, he had the tackle for loss late in the first quarter. He had the great tackle on the crosser on third and six in the second quarter. So just some great plays from him. Cam Epps, kind of like with Dylan Smith, his was a little. I, I think he I think he had a better game, but he didn't pop almost like when we talked about Benson previously run game i know sometimes he's the free safety so i get that but in the run game i think he i think it's gonna take like a while for him to get comfortable with reading reacting and his run fits he doesn't really help out at all in the run game and he's you'll see him running up late and i i don't think it's a lack of hustle i think he's almost so worried about an rpo getting beat over the top that he's reacting so late to the run game he also is still having trouble we mentioned this previously getting blocked by wide receivers at his size you cannot let a wide receiver block you on the perimeter you have to get off that and then he got absolutely run over on that first west virginia touchdown (laughs) and then obviously getting beat deep in cover two where he's the deep safety you're not supposed to get beat deep when you're the deep safety yeah can't can't happen can't happen uh, uh, onto the corners, Corey Black. The first defensive pass interference I thought was a little weak. The second one, he can't do that. And he even mentioned it in his media availability this week. He didn't think the first one was that bad, but he said right after, but I can't get called for that. He's like, I got to be physical without getting called for it. He can't get called for that. That's he exactly what I thought. The Preston Fox slot receiver throw where he's falling down. I think when Corey saw him fall, he was like, I'm going to get away from him because I don't want to get another DPI. Right. And then he makes the catch. So I'm not going to fault him for that. But he uh, he had a really, really good coverage on that first DPI. That's all mad that he got called for it. He didn't need to interfere. The pick, that's cover two, Kate. He has the flat. No receivers there. So he just kept sinking, kept sinking, and picked it off. You see 
On the other side, Alan Bowman's able to throw over that cornerback three or four times. He tricked Garrett Green into thinking he was still in the flat and picked that off. So that was awesome. Really good coverage on a slant late in the second quarter. I thought he was, I thought it was probably his worst game, but only because he got penalized and gave up that slot throw. I, I didn't think it was a bad game from him in coverage. And they, in the second half, they didn't even test him. So I left the game thinking the exact same thing on the, on the second that, pardon me, COVID's killing me as I, as I bear through this podcast. I thought that, the way Corey Black said that about his second pass interference was exactly the way I felt about it. It was decent coverage, but you can't be in that position to get called for that again after you've already done that. So I thought that that was pretty brutal, and especially in the situation, right? Like your your senior safe or your senior corner can't get caught in that spot on third down with a chance to get off the field. It was a mistake, was the best way I could say it. But overall. I think you're right that it was probably his worst game, but it's because he was actually visible in a bad way, which has not been the case at all this season. So he'll get better. He'll, he'll be fine. I'm not worried about it. So. Yeah. Like one of the, I mean, obviously they didn't want to keep throwing at him because they didn't even throw his way in the second half. So he obviously was doing something right. McKinney got thrown at. I think McKinney got thrown at more than like anybody's gotten thrown at all season. He got thrown at nine times. He had the one route where, late where the guy came back and caught it down by the goal line. He wasn't in good coverage there, but I don't know if that's the reason that got caught. Cause that was such a weird throw. I, it wasn't great coverage there, but I think that he was solid overall. He had a couple good plays at the end of the game. He almost had a pick at the very beginning of the game on a throw to the flat too much cushion on one crosser, but he, I mean, I wrote down several times where he had good coverage. There's a deep ball in the third quarter where he had good coverage. I think if if you're critiquing a corner for giving up a couple catches when they get targeted nine times, I just I think that's a little bit unfair. I think with how many times he got thrown at, it was a really solid game by him. Well, and he's always near the ball. Like he's not usually the one that's making the bust play. It's, it's normally been the safeties. So with him, I mean, even on that deep throw that Garrett Green made near the end of the game. McKinney was right there. I thought he made the right play by not trying to, you know, if he interferes, he he's probably thinking he may not make that catch anyway. I thought he was right there with a chance to make the play, but it was conservative and he's young and you would expect that in some way. So as he gets more confident, he's got all the tools, I think. And, and I think we're going to look back next year when we talked about him two years ago and think, yeah, we were pretty dead on about that. And then Kale Smith, 32 snaps. I, I thought he looked good in his first game with more than seven snaps. That's the most he's had to this point. There was one play in the first quarter where he got kind of blocked inside, creeping in by a tight end, and Garrett Green got to the edge. But I I thought Kale Smith was pretty good. He also good ran and, right into Brennan Presley and caused that fumble on the on yeah, special teams. Special so. team. Okay, that is a great segue into special teams. He also had the roughing the kicker. Yes. Which wasn't great, which allowed allowed Neil Brown to onside kick because he had the field position advantage there. So that wasn't great. But aside from the one that, you know, I guess curved past the upright, he was good again. He was two or three on field goals. Probably could make an argument he was three or three. Parker Robinson, we talked about him all season. He gets the fumble. My only critique on that is 
dude, pick it up and run, run with it. Yeah, he would have scored a touchdown, and then we could have been like, see, we told you guys about Parker Robinson. There was nobody there. Yeah, I, I get it. He he just wanted to secure the get possession. The ball. Yeah. Logan Ward, every single one of his kicks at least got to the goal line. That's a uh that's a stat that people aren't talking about, but that's big time. I don't think West Virginia wanted to return him anyway, but that's big time. Nixon had a tackle on the very first kickoff that was awesome. I thought it was Cam Smith, but it was Nixon. And then he returns a kick seven yards deep in the end zone. Yeah, that was what wild. was he doing? No, you never see that anymore. And so when it happens, it's like, what are you doing? It had to have been at halftime. They were like, we're returning it no matter what. I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt there that that was a team coaching player decision. Because if he made that decision, because Presley's not telling him to stay in. I went and looked. Like Presley's not like, hey, that's way too deep. So. I mean, I just, it, it, it was really weird. And then like, on that fir- on that punt that he fumbled, I think he's got to be louder because Kale Smith, if he, I don't think he knew where Presley was and he needs to, it's really hard when you're, when you're blocking like that to know where the, where exactly the ball is going to be, but your punt return guy's got to help. He's got to be screaming right at you to get away from the ball or whatever code word they use for that. So I'm not going to put that all on Kale. And then my last one, I've been here for West Paul since day one. You can't kick it into the back of the shield. You just, you can't do that, my guy. And Hudson Cock came back in for him and had a really good punt in the third quarter. So I'm I'm upset with West Paul. I'm just going to say it. I mean, kicking it in the back of your, you know, up back's head, you don't see that a whole lot anymore. Like, especially for a punter that's like, you know, you're going to be moving. So watch out for the up back's head. He might be (laughs) too tall to be the guy that does that because it seems like that's much more possible than you would think with him. Yeah. I mean, just uh, with Wes Paul, it's almost like, why do the rugby and stuff like that? Just let him kick it. Yeah, I I, I actually don't understand it. it either. Hey, is the Brendan Presley returning punts thing like is that you know is it good or are we are we getting by without it burning you? I mean, he fumbled one against South Alabama. He now he did it again, and then he but then he catches the onside kick, so right? Like, Which was a good freakish hands. catch, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I think. My thing with it is he's so dynamic after the catch. We talked about the 56 yards after the catch that they're willing to risk it a little bit. It just seems so ungundy like to do that. Like you would just put, but, but Kate, my question to you is who else would you put back there? Because yeah. we've seen drops from all the receivers. Well, to fit, I was curious what you were going to say about Presley is because the fumbles notwithstanding, I don't think he's the savviest back there. Like sometimes he lets a punt yeah. hit. That yeah. he shouldn't, he should catch a lot more. And sometimes he catches punts that he should let hit. So uh it's been very interesting with him. The best way I can say it is he doesn't have that great of savvy in that spot. To answer your question, though, Dustin, I have no clue. And that's probably why he's still back there. I don't think you put a Jaden Nixon back there. I think I think that's probably why he is back there. You don't have a Parrish Cox on defense that uh you can throw back there or a Justin Gilbert, I don't think so. Yeah, it's it is a great call out though. It's very interesting. Okay, that wraps up the review. And I think I'm ready to move on to Cincinnati yep. if you are. 
Yeah, it's a big W in WVU. Dustin, I mean, this is the quintessential trap game that Oklahoma State coming off a win in Morgantown the weekend before Bedlam against a two and five Cincinnati team who has not won a Big 12 conference game. This is a game that the line is like, it, it's kind of like spooky how low it is. And to me, Dustin, it screams trap game. Yeah, and and Kate, the thing with Cincinnati is they've lost a few close games. The Baylor game, there was a fumbled kickoff return that yep. Baylor scored on. There was some wild stuff that happened. Cincinnati gets it like close at the end of the game. It's just kind of like all over the place. And then the thing that is just extremely confusing to me it with them is outside of OU. I don't think they played any good teams. So it's nope. hard to gauge them. And the one good team they play, they score what six points yep. against them. So their offense against good teams has looked really bad. And then their defense has actually looked pretty good in terms of their front seven, their run defense against most teams. And they but then they've given up a ton of explosive plays on the back end. So I think there's things that they're good at and things that they're really bad at that we're so far in the season. I I think that's just who they are. And like you said, a perfect trap game. Oklahoma State may have some injuries and even more that, you know, Cam Smith, Jaden Bray that we haven't heard confirmed homecoming. But, But on the flip side, Cincinnati hasn't even played, I don't think, any kind of environment with Scott Satterfield as their head coach like Oklahoma state's going to be on homecoming night. Even if the game, it looks like it might rain. Even if it's rainy, it's still going to be a crazy atmosphere. And like I said, I just don't know. I don't know if they've played anybody good. Yeah. And I think the game, the stretch of the season that like most shows me who Cincinnati is, is the last two games losing to Iowa state by 20 on your home field. Iowa state, beat Oklahoma State. It turns out they may be pretty good. Rocco Becht may know how to actually play football after all. And then you lose to Baylor at home. So you have now lost two home games to teams who were thought to be, you know, bottom dwellers in the Big 12. Iowa State has been a good story, but Baylor is not a good football team. And now Cincinnati, two and five, you know, what's their motivation level like? You know, trap game on paper, you wonder how just the fact that it's homecoming, does that, does the festivities, it's a sellout, it's a night game. Does that remove that from the equation? I tend to believe it does because Oklahoma State, I, I think, has their sights set on something big. And, you know, historically, this is a game that Oklahoma State has performed well in. I knock on wood as I say that. But the trap games, the games that Oklahoma State has historically lost have not been the trap games. They've been the games that they uh, either should have won or were not favored in to begin with. So that this is a situation that Oklahoma state historically excels in. Well, and Kate, we talked about last week, what I say on the pod. If I said, if the West Virginia game was at home, even though you did mention that Oklahoma state's been very good in West Virginia, but at home and I knew for sure it wasn't going to rain. I think Oklahoma state is a 10 plus point better team than West Virginia. And that ends up happening without the conditions that I said. And I think Cincinnati might be a little worse than West Virginia. So oh, I, yeah. they're going to be the 
they're going to be the worst big 12 team that Oklahoma state's played. And if, you know, if me and you are making predictions that Oklahoma state's going to beat West Virginia by 10 plus points, I, I don't know how we don't do that with Addy as well. Even like you said, or even like I said, with some injuries and even like you said, with it being the quintessential trap game. I think for me, like, again, I said, the line is kind of spooky low, I was expecting this to open at like 12, 12 and a half. And Oklahoma State opens as seven-point home favorites. So on a neutral field, this is a Oklahoma State minus four. So Vegas thinks that these are fairly evenly matched teams. Cincinnati's defense, as you said, you know, they they've been pretty sound up front. They turn the ball over a ton, though. And Oklahoma State's defense that has thrived on that potentially raining conditions in Stillwater. It it feels like this sets up for Oklahoma State to me. Yeah, and even though this is a new team, Cade, Oklahoma State just played Emory Jones at Arizona <laughs> right. State last year, so it's not like it's a guy they haven't played, and they're coming off two straight weeks of playing quarterbacks that can scramble yep. and move the play with their feet. So it's almost, it's almost like, man, are they going to do the exact same defensive game plan again? But, Cade, enough of the kind of high level. Let's get into their offensive defense real quick. Kind of similar to the West Virginia preview, we'll give you we'll, and all the previews we've done this year. We'll try to keep it quick, but definitely give you the big time hitters here. So, like I said, Scott Satterfield is their coach. He came over from Louisville in the off season, had to fill in a lot of holes as Luke Fickle took a bunch of players with him to Wisconsin. He's a former quarterback at Appalachian State. He's got kind of that Rich Rod style, up tempo, shotgun based spread option offense with a heavy emphasis on zone running. That's kind of been what he's done at every stop. Small playbook with a lot of different looks, a lot of different motions. Kind of reminds me of the Gundy offense. So we talked about not many pass concepts. They do them out of a bunch of different looks and he'll add in play action POs. Coming into the year, no one thought Cincinnati was going to be very good. I think the Vegas over underline was four and a half. And it's looking like it's going to be a struggle for them to get to that number. So it'll be kind of interesting to see how that goes. Like I said, their offense, they lost a lot of people in the offseason. They're 67th in passing offense, 10th in rushing offense, 84th in yards per play, 84th in points per drive, 63rd in sacks allowed. And as you mentioned, the turnovers, they're 105th in turnover margin. Their OC is Brad Glenn. Like I said, it's a spread option, shotgun style. I'd almost say it's almost kind of like Baylor's wide zone type offense. You'll see a lot of 11 and 12 personnel, plenty of police pre-snap motion. They'll do fly sweeps. They like to stress the defense lottery, a la the wide zone, inside zone, outside zone. The key difference maybe between their offense and Baylor's is that they, they're kind of more of a spread team and they like to involve the quarterback, obviously a lot more than Baylor does with Shapin running the ball. And Emory Jones is good at running the ball in the passing game. Some of the West coast offense play action concepts, and they'll do some RPOs. They'll split their tight end, uh, Shimon Mateer out quite a bit along with the zone. I've seen the truck sweep. They'll obviously do some split zone stuff, GH counter, and they'll even option with Emory Jones at times. And they love to do the QB draw. That's almost like one of their go-to run plays. Quick passing game has been kind of where Emory Jones has thrived and not made many mistakes. When he starts to kind of throw it in the middle of the field or deep downfield, that's where he gets into these kind of 
bad situations with all of his injuries. But that's kind of Cade. That's kind of the general overview of their offense. Yeah, a great breakdown there, Dustin. One of the things that you know jumps out at me is if if QB draw is the staple of their uh you know kind of quarterback run game, Justin Kirkland, Nick Martin, I would think you match up well with a scheme like that. And additionally, like I isn't Baylor kind of the de- the offensive style that you feel at least this is the way I looked at the three three five. The three three five with a Justin Kirkland was built to stop an offense like Baylor's. That was at least the yeah. way I uh, walked into this, you know, new setting. And so if it's like Baylor in that regard, you would think that Oklahoma state's got the guys in place to be able to manage that. And additionally, you know, is this a game where, you know, the safeties don't have as much put on them down the field. This is a game where you, maybe the secondary looks better than it has in recent memory because you're facing kind of a vertically challenged quarterback in Emory Jones. Yeah. And okay, they, they actually ran the KU tight end at left tackle play against Iowa state. And Very good. So they're, they're going to, and they did a weird two point conversion thing against Baylor. So they're definitely going to do a trick play here, or there, the offensive line. I think they're not as good probably as like a West Virginia's, but I do think it's a good offensive line. Like they're an above average big 12 offensive line they haven't had any injuries and I, I both their tackles john williams and deandre buford have been really good their center gavin gerhardt is one of the only guys who's returning on the entire offense the guards tinsley and kandra have also been really good i think kandra's been a little bit better they they like running to the right side behind him and then they'll they'll rotate in trevor radosevich and philip wilder at guard and tackle respectively. So those are some guys you'll see there, but it's not like, I don't think they're like a world beating offensive line. They're definitely talented to have a rushing offense as, as prominent as they have been. Yeah. And I think if you're going to run an offense with, you know, Emory Jones at 15, 16, 14, 20 yards of carry, you you've got to be able to trust your offensive line in that regard. Yeah. At their skill positions, Corey Kiner, LSU transfer, He's been kind of their main running back, 563 yards and two touchdowns this season. Outside of him, they have Miles Montgomery. He's a little bit more explosive. Kiner seems to be the guy that they like to run zone with. And then Montgomery, they'll mix in some gap. Or sorry, they'll they'll mix in some gap with Kiner, and it's pretty much all zone with Montgomery. Satterfield has mentioned a bunch that they haven't had a lot of explosive runs from this group. They did against Baylor, but other than that, they really have it, and they have no rushing touchdowns in Big 12 play. I, I don't think until coming – I think they may have gotten one. They had two in the Baylor game, but coming into the Baylor game, they had no rushing touchdowns in Big 12 play. So the running backs, although they've been rushing the ball, they have not been good in the red zone. And then they their third running back, Brian Montgomery, is banged up, and I don't think he's going to play. So it's probably going to be all kind of – and and Miles Montgomery as a Brian Montgomery is the one who's injured. So I don't know, Kate. If you I I know both these guys rush for over a hundred yards against Baylor, but I just think they're kind of like yeah, average th- running backs. That is exactly the way I think about it. It's like balanced and average. Like they they did a good job blocking up Baylor. It seems like everybody's done a good job of blocking Baylor up this year. So yeah, and then their receivers. They've been okay, but they they haven't been able to kind of consistently get separation. I personally like uh, Xavier Henderson. He's 6'3", 200 pounds. He's really good after the catch. 
threat. He's probably my favorite, but it's not like he's going nuts this year. 490 yards, three touchdowns so far. They'll throw to D Wiggins. They'll throw to Braden Smith in the slot. But like I said, their tight end is scariest guy in their passing game. Chamon Mateer. They'll motion him around. 6'5", 248, kind of move him all over the place. And then their other tight end, Peyton Singletary, he only has 10 catches on the year. Two of them are TDs. <laughs> That's kind of wild. So, yeah, and then their uh, Barrick Falk, their fullback tight end, he actually got hurt against Baylor, so I don't know if he's going to play. And then, Cade, we've talked about Emory Jones just to round out the offense. 13 TDs to eight interceptions this year. He's barely above. 60% completion percentage. Played at Florida, played at Arizona State. He's a really good runner, really talented runner. He's got a big arm. He just, I just don't think the mental part of the game is there. He, they've just been pretty much, if his first read isn't there, he's scrambling. Yeah. That was kind of the way he was at Arizona State. This is the way I felt like he was at Florida and why he didn't succeed there in the first place. What's interesting is he brought a guy that he knows well in Xavier Henderson that transferred from Florida is now his leading receiver. I don't know what that says, but I just, Emory Jones is kind of one of those like enigmas in college football. It's like he has the physical traits, but I, between the ears, I don't think it's come together really at all. So, you know, if they're going to win this game, I think it's going to be because, you know, Oklahoma state lapses in coverage uh, multiple easy plays made by Emory Jones. They don't make things difficult on him. That's the way I think he beats you ultimately is if your defense doesn't rise to the occasion. So it's almost, it's almost a game where I know I talked about the defense, maybe having a similar game plan as they've had the past couple of weeks against KU and against West Virginia. But I could also see the flip side, especially if it's, if it ends up not being rainy and, and you're able to throw the ball where you kind of sit back maybe with a spy and try to stop the Cincinnati run game with not not extra numbers in the box and make Emory Jones dink and dunk you all and night contain him in the pocket because I think if you do that he's probably going to throw a pick or two he he should have had like five picks in the Baylor game yeah. there were multiple turnover worthy plays PFF doesn't have it marked like that, but I watched that entire game and he made some crazy throws into coverage. So I, it, I could see the defensive game plan going either way. Yeah, I could too. I don't know if I trust the secondary enough to be like, you know, stack the box and make them throw it. Part of me just says, yeah, make, make the, you know, average decision-making quarterback, make a bunch of decisions. That's what I would do. Yeah, almost like the true three three five. How it right. like that's what it's, it's designed its to do. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So okay, moving on to the defense real quick. Ninety second in passing defense. So I said it's because they're giving up explosives because they're eighteenth in rushing defense, twenty eighth in tackles for loss, forty fifth in sacks, eighty seventh in defensive yards per play, and eighty third in defensive points per drive. So when you look at the points per drive and yards per play, it it kind of shows you that maybe this isn't truly a good all-around defense. They've just done a good job stopping the run. But when you look at the Baylor game, if you take out the three sacks that Cincinnati had and the two kneels that Baylor had, they only ran the ball 23 times compared to 42 passes. 
So it's almost like they didn't even try to run it. So I, it, Dominic Richardson only ran it eight times and he was rushing for 4.6 yards per carry. So it's, it's like they abandoned the run completely. And if you watch the game, they threw it a bunch on first down too. Wow. So I, I get that Cincinnati's rush defense has stopped people, but it's also like Baylor didn't even really try. Right. So it's kind of interesting to see. Yeah. It's, it's a little interesting to see how Cincinnati is like adapted to the big 12. It's one, it hasn't gone well, but two, like, I don't think that they are all around that great. They're decent, but they, they have not played an offense like Oklahoma state's. I think Iowa state's probably your best comp. Dustin, the thing that like jumps out at me is they gave up 35 points to BYU and a bunch of yards. BYU is probably one of the worst offenses in the conference, especially just, you know, baseline yards per play yardage. They're one of the worst offenses in the conference. I think Dustin, that defensively Cincinnati, you know, if they play Oklahoma state soundly, Oklahoma state scores right at 30, 34. Like that's the type of output I would expect. I don't think that, I just don't think that they're that great. I think that defensively, Baylor, you know, kind of obliged and helped them out in a way. Yeah. And I, I think those are good points by you. It's, it's going to be interesting because I do think this defense in the front seven is really good. And I'm not trying to say they're overrated. I just kind of back to my initial point. I don't know who they played besides OU and they did. They held OU to 20 points, but also I think if OU plays them now and they're, you know, cause that was really early in the season and they're rolling a little bit more, you know, kind of like Oklahoma state's offense is rolling a little bit more. Now I'd like to see what the output would be points wise for OU in a rematch, but obviously that's, that's just what ifs there talking and talking about their scheme. It's kind of like a three, four hybrid with that Leo position, defensive end linebacker hybrid and Cade, you know, we like to call it the cool names. They call it their dog linebacker. <laughs> so, that, but their so, mascot's a cat. Yeah. So they've got their dog linebacker and they also have a star safety, which is like a linebacker, which Oklahoma state used to have that Calvin bondage played that position, the linebacker safety hybrid. So they've got two hybrid players on the defense. Can't can never have enough hybrids. They'll operate out of a true three man front. Sometimes in long yarded situations, sometimes they'll put their star linebacker inside where a normal linebacker would be and add another defensive back onto the field. It's a pretty even split, a man and zone. They'll either like to play cover one or cover three, and they kind of you know disguise that by setting up the same way and either dropping those corners deep into cover three or having them stay pressed up on you and man. So it can get a little bit confusing, but also I think the corners aren't the best to be playing man on the outsides, and it's why teams like the explosive amount of explosive plays long deep down the sideline that Cincinnati's given up this year is a little bit absurd. It their corners have not looked good at all covering deep down the field. They're very aggressive in the run though. But they're very vulnerable. They'll like I said they mix in some zones. Some I saw a little bit of like Tampa 2 looked like cover 2 coverage. They'll blitz guys from the secondary. They like to move their front all around. They like to move their linebackers all around. They they want to be quote unquote disruptive and attacking, but it's hurt them on explosive plays. So whereas a three three five we just talked about maybe is a little more bend don't break. This defense is more like hey we're gonna attack you and try to force a big play. 
but we may give up a big play as well. They've been really good on kind of the standard down. So like your first and 10, your second and six, your third and three or more, which Oklahoma State has actually been good on offense in those downs recently. So we'll kind of see that that yeah. battle of strengths there. And then Gundy said this is the best front seven that they faced this year. He's probably right, but I, I, you know, I don't know, you know, some of these front sevens maybe aren't the most elite that Oklahoma State has gone up against this year. I also like, I appreciate him saying that, but I, I don't know. K-State's got like multiple, multiple guys up front. Like I do like Cincinnati. I think that they've got some players, but I, I don't know. I'm, I'll, I'll trust Mike on that one that that's not, you know, some, some locker room, you know, fodder. We'll see. Yeah, they're D.C. Brian Brown. He's another one of those younger coordinators we faced. I think he's only 38. He's a DB at Ole Miss. He's been with Satterfield since the Louisville days. So looking at their personnel, the best position group on the team is the defensive line. It's one of the best in the conference. They've been able to hold their own on early downs against the run or let their linebackers free flow pretty much consistently all season. You're going to have to use tight ends and fullbacks and your offensive line is going to have to block well to gain yards because these guys are going to eat up blocks and double teams and you're going to need those extra blockers to take on the linebackers. Obviously, you probably, if you're listening to this pod, probably been watching football, probably know this guy's name, Dante Corleone, the godfather, 6'2", 318 pounds. He's an all-conference caliber nose tackle. It's going to be interesting to see Maholski and some of these interior guys, especially when they're in an odd front, take him on because he's a monster. The one thing I will say though, Cade, is he's gotten banged up in like the last several games and had to leave the field for a little bit. I heard, I saw earlier today that like, there's a chance he's like probable for this game. Oh, wow. So it wasn't like from a super reliable source. I just saw something on Twitter about him being banged up. So I, I don't know. Or maybe maybe it was Tom Dorado that said that on the radio with Robert Allen. If he didn't play, that kind of changes everything because he's the anchor of this defense. As you would expect, as we talked about Justin Kirkland potentially being for Oklahoma State. So yeah, he's a he's a great player. And I love how you broke down the way Oklahoma State will need to attack that by bringing in tight ends, fullbacks, et cetera. Yeah, I really like Briggs, Phillips, Malik Vaughn. Those are all really talented players. They'll mix in Jalen Hunt, Justin Woodley as well. Linebacker core. I'm going to, cons- I'm going to count the dog linebacker there and the star. So Daniel Greshik, it doesn't look like that on, but obviously I'm a pronunciation guide guy. So I found out that it's Greshik, Utah state transfer, the dog linebacker. He's probably my favorite. He's second on the team in hurries sack leader. Like I said, he's that hybrid D E L B. Dorian Jones, Jack Dingles, kind of their big run-stopping guy. Jonathan Thomas will also get mixed in there. Him and Dorian Jones will kind of rotate in and out. And then their star position, Deshaun Pace, outside of Greshik and Corleone, he's probably the third best player on their defense. He struggles a little in coverage when they ask him to do that, but he's a big tackle for loss, versatile guy. And then the defensive backfield, Kate, all these guys have been exposed, especially number one. Jordan Young, he has just not been very good. And they lost Sammy Anderson Jr. for the season, who was a guy that was supposed to kind of sure up this defensive backfield. But, man, they're all pretty aggressive and good and physical against the run. 
But deep downfield, I Baylor was completing passes when two of these guys were down there covering one of their wide receivers and they were still were completing the pass. Yeah. It's a little bit wild to watch them in hindsight. Cause it's not like they're youthful back there. They, they've no. got some experience. They just, they're not that good. Yeah. They've really struggled, but those are kind of the main guys. I think. Kate, I mean, this is a game where I would want to see an outside receiver for Oklahoma state take over and finally get the deep ball working. But Man, no stribbling. If Bray's end up ban- if Bray's banged up, which I'm not, I don't know for a fact that he is. Can Rashad Owens, Leon Johnson, and Blaine Green do that on their own? Yeah, that's that's a scary proposition because you're going to need somebody, I think, to help take some of the pressure off the interior of the offense as they go up against a, a really solid defensive line. So yeah, you're, you're going to need to be able to get separation reliably at those perimeter receiver positions. hundred percent. All right, Cade, do you want to pick it? Yeah, let's go ahead. Do you have the information in front of you? Yeah. So I've got the over under at Oklahoma state, mi- or sorry, the, the spread at Oklahoma state minus seven and a half and the over under at 53.5. I tried to be conservative last week and pick the game as if there was weather. And then it ended up not raining until the like fourth quarter. So because it's only Tuesday, I'm not going to take weather into consideration and I'm going to pick this game. Like it's just normal weather. And I promise I won't use that in my favor later. I'm just trying to make a pick. So I'm going to go 34 Oklahoma state to 24 Cincinnati. So that'll be over, so 58, so I'm five points over, and then uh, I have it at Oklahoma State winning by 10, so I'm taking Oklahoma State to cover. I thought you and I were about to hit the same bullseye, so I like it a lot. 34 was my number for Oklahoma State as well. I just think they're going to get held up on a couple of drives that they have to settle for field goals. I think ultimately – This is a game where the defense does look pretty good. Being able to contain Emory Jones on the ground because they don't have as much perimeter talent that you would like to see. I don't know if they're going to be able to get down the field on Oklahoma State. So I actually have Oklahoma State 34, Cincinnati 20, which is right at the over. Is it not? Did you say it was 53 and a half? So it's right at the over. That's right at it. With Oklahoma State uh, covering comfortably. I just I just feel like Oklahoma State's hitting their stride a little bit. These are two teams going in opposite directions schematically. I see some things that could cause some issues, but these are two teams trending much differently. So I think that oftentimes that matters. Especially, too, on homecoming, it, if Oklahoma State gets out early and gets the crowd going into it, I know they haven't like blown teams out this year, but like you mentioned, Cincinnati – it's, it's just a tough point in the season as a fan base for them, losing Luke Fickle, losing a bunch of players. I think they could get demoralized if Oklahoma State were to, you know, get up like they did against West Virginia 10 to zero early and yep. not really be able to fight back. And it could end up getting ugly. I can see that. If it's pouring rain and Jaden Bray's out, then, you know, Maybe it becomes a little closer, but all I, bets I think are overall, off at that point to me. Oklahoma State is the more talented team. And even if they aren't able to connect deep down the sideline, I think Oklahoma State is going to be able to run the ball a little bit better than some of like than Baylor did, or at least they'll try to. And I think they're going to scheme up ways to get Presley open, get the ball out quickly. 
And I, I just, I don't think Cincinnati's talented enough on the outside to stop both of the either running. They're going to have to pick their poison. I think Oklahoma State's going to hurt them one way or the other. Yeah, it says a lot with a you know roster depleted of uh, wide receiver on the outside that they still have enough. I think I agree with you to make a team like Cincinnati pick their poison. It says a lot about the depth there, but wide receivers are concerns. My biggest concern headed into this one, so uh, yeah, it's an unfortunate situation. Yeah, in this game, it would be this would be the shriveling go off game. Yeah, I I would totally agree with that. Even Bray, like if Bray is healthy. I could see him having over 100 yards in a game like this. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I well, I mean, I would throw it to Owens deep too, but um, okay. You want to hit that last ad read? Yeah, let's hear here? from our boys at Wild Oak Lighting. Yes, as Cade mentioned, Wild Oak Lighting is your authorized jellyfish lighting dealer for the greater Oklahoma City area, Stillwater, and several other Oklahoma markets. Jellyfish lighting is a permanent but discreet color-changing LED lighting system for the exterior of your home. With 16 million different colors and patterns, jellyfish lighting can be used for Christmas, holiday, and accent lighting. And of course, Oklahoma State game day lighting. We really appreciate Wild Oak Lighting sponsoring the Feels Like 45 podcast. Please check them out at wildoak-lighting.com. You can follow them on Facebook, and you can also follow them on Instagram at wildoak underscore lighting we talked about their instagram and their social media last week they do an awesome job on there you can see testimonials you can see some examples of things that they put up please check that out obviously as we're getting into holiday season definitely hit them up tell them you heard about them from the podcast they'll be super sweet to you the guys over there are sweet already but they'll be even extra sweet and they're awesome lights and they're great for any occasion like i said but definitely for christmas dustin absolutely uh Wild Oak Lighting does a fantastic job. I've I've met the guys out there. They they're fantastic, and they I can confirm they will be friendly to you. Uh, that's why we partner with them. Great service, uh, Dustin. My voice has hit a wall. Uh, I hope you can understand, but appreciate you as always putting together a fantastic recap and an advanced look at an opponent in Cincinnati that could cause some issues. But I think Oklahoma State matches up with well. If you're not already, you can follow us at Feels Like 45 Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Threads, where you can see fantastic breakdowns of the games from last week, games from previous, and great looks ahead. So, Feels Like 45 Pod on Twitter, Instagram, and Threads at DustRagoo, and you can follow me at Cade Webb. We will see you guys back here next week. Happy homecoming. Go, folks.